Hello there, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where tonight, the good stuff cometh at unawares and beyond hope. Oh, Wes Duhal, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, the Aragorn to my air mare, Alan Sisto. Thank you, Sean. Well, after once again spending way more time on a topic than we said we would, I refer, (laughs) of course, to our two episodes and four combined hours on tour and the fall of Gondolin, we're back tonight with a single-episode chapter, which we'll still probably spend too much time on. It's Chapter 24 of The Voyage of Arendil and the War of Wrath. Well, certainly if I have anything to do with it, we'll spend so much time on it. Uh, yes, and as much as I wanted to ask you to take the week off for this, Alan, so I could solo this one. <laughs> Ooh, a vacation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm kidding. I couldn't do that. Um, I, I couldn't let you have a vacation. Um, <laughs> truly, actually, more than ever, I'm really looking forward to some great discussion with this one. Uh, as I'm sure everyone but maybe two of our listeners knows, this is my favorite story in the Silmarillion, <laughs> so I'm very excited. Yeah, I know you want to get on with it as quickly as possible, Sean. But we owe it to our listeners to dig into Barnum's bag. We've got to delay things, don't we? Yeah, so what we do. we do. have in the bag? But please forgive me if I pick a couple of short ones tonight. So oh, can, not a problem. I, I think that's can, understood. We can get to the story quickly. Uh, I've actually got two here from Donna in Indiana that uh, go nicely together and I think make a nice epilogue to our last episode. Mm-hmm. And also uh, nicely tease The Hobbit, which I can't believe I'm saying this, will actually be starting in about three months. Oh, my goodness. Amazing, isn't it? Time flies. Yeah. Uh, So the first one from Donna, she said, Was the mithril coat found in Smaug's hoard the small coat given to Arendil by his mother Idril? Ooh. Um, I know, right? (laughs) That's a a new one to me, but it's really interesting. That sure Um, is. And uh, and I'll kind of explain what she means by that. Um, But I'm going to first of all say I I think she might be on to something here. Oh, you're right. That, Um, That part that I'm thinking of isn't in Unfinished Tales, is it? Anyway, we'll get uh, no, to that. Sorry. No, I'm jumping no. ahead, folks. Sorry. <laughs> well, uh, so let me let me kind of go back and kind of explain what, what we're talking about here. So, yeah. okay, um, everybody knows Bilbo gets a, a coat of mail from Smaug's Horde. Right. Um, going back to what the Hobbit tells us about that coat of mail, when Thorin gives it to them, gives, gives it to him, it says, mm-hmm. with that, he put on Bilbo a small coat of mail wrought for some young elf prince long ago. It was of silver steel, which the elves call mithril. And with it went a belt of pearls and crystals. So okay, we've got a we've got a mithril coat that comes right. from a young elf prince. And then the other thing Don is thinking about is actually something that's in the the Fall of Gondolin version that's in the Book of Lost that's Tales. Right. That's, yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, so it's in that really early version, but it does say that um, Idril uh, coming to two um, not to two or to Arendil, it says uh, his mother coming set about him a tiny coat of mail that she had let fashion in secret. Huh. And that's really all we know about it. But it, clearly there was a, a, a baby Arendelle-sized coat of mail or a child Arendelle-sized coat of mail right. um, that was in Gondolin in that early version. Now and that would be about a seven-year-old boy, if I remember correctly, right? That's Wasn't right. He, yeah. I think it was seven years after their marriage. That's but, right. Yeah. Yes. You're absolutely right. So, yeah. So he would have right been, yeah. been about the right size for a hobbit, certainly. Hmm. Um, it's, it's the Book of Lost Tales version. And True. we know, I mean, by... By Christopher Tolkien's own admission, you know, we talked about this. There's so much that was changed oh, yeah. from tons from that of the, yeah. Book of Lost Tales version to the later. But, you know, maybe this was a detail that Tolkien would have kept the same. We don't maybe. know. Um, if we had actually written the story out the way he really wanted to, maybe he would have kept it like this. Um, huh. uh, going back to the Hobbit, you know, passage, it, 
I mean, we know that Arendil is not just some young elf prince, right? I mean, we right. know he's a half-elven, but there's no reason to believe that Bilbo would have known that, certainly not at the time when he was receiving the coat. No. Um, there's no reason to believe that Thorin would have known that. And, you know, considering that Arendil was raised in Gondolin among elves by an elf mother and mm. an elf grandfather, <laughs> you know, mm. just fully among elves, maybe the fact that he was actually only half-elf might you know, who knows? The dwarves may not have even known that when it was commissioned. So that's true. There's a possibility there. Um, I, I'm also struck by the fact that there's a belt of pearls that goes with it. Um, if the belt was actually originally part of the set with the mithril coat, then, you know, the pearls might suggest that it was made for a family with some sort of uh -huh. connection to the sea and to Olmo. Uh, so maybe okay. there's some support for that. Um, and then I even because it's Arendel related, my mind just starts racing and I start thinking, well, maybe that maybe owning this coat led Bilbo to research elf princes later in life. And maybe that's how he got so interested in Arendel, interested enough to write a poem about him. And I know I'm just going completely crazy. Well, that's now, that's off the rails, man. That is a bit off the rails. But, um, and honestly, I think if that had been the case, you know, you'd think maybe that some details about the coat might have made it into his Arendel poem. You know, there's yeah. no... There's no pearls or crystals on his armor or anything like that. So no. I don't know. I, I'm kind of at a maybe with this one. But do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I, I like the maybe. I, certainly it's an intriguing thought. Um, but, you know, you, the, one of the things you just said at the end is something that's, that I'm thinking about. We know all about those crazy other exotic materials from from Bilbo's mm -hmm. poem about Arendelle, the ebony and the silver and the chalcedony and the adamant right. and the emerald. He goes um, into a lot of detail, yeah. He really does. And... But but there's something else in the poem that I thought about this the ship that he describes uh, that the Vingalot that we'll get to tonight the ship that he describes that Arendil takes to is um, made of mithril and of elven glass mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like the Bugatti Veyron of ships actually but there are no <laughs> pearls um, yeah. you know it's it's made of like you know the the shifter costs twenty seven thousand right. dollars because it's made <laughs> right. of titanium right. and it's you know right yeah. Um, but it, it is an interesting speculation. I certainly like the idea of that mm -hmm. sort of continuity. <clears throat> you know, the age is right. Mm -hmm. um, but the only concern that I have, and I'm trying to figure out how, is, is how did it get there? Mithril was found only in Moria. Uh, that's a very long way for Idril to, to, to mail order a, um, a mail. <laughs> it's kind of a redundancy, sorry. It's a mail order. Uh, it's a mail order. Especially because, you know, she couldn't provide a shipping address. Um, <laughs> oh, Gondolin, very... Secret City. <laughs> oh, wait, that I can't even a... say Gondolin. Cross that out. That, that is a good point. <laughs> that is a good point, yeah. P.O. Box, nowhere. Yeah. Zip code. <laughs> even even the Amazon delivery service isn't going to be able to find yeah. that. I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe the new drones could, but... Maybe so. Um, but and, and how would it have ended up in Smaug's Horde? That is, in Erebor, so very far away from Gondolin. Now, here's where I think I probably would have said almost certainly is it had been found in the Troll Horde along with, with Glamdring. Then I'd be, oh, yeah, okay, that that had to have come from, from Gondolin. Because those other swords and Sting and everything all right. came from... all from, came from, from, yeah. from Gondolin. Um, mm. But I, I honestly don't have any equally interesting speculations, so I'll, I'll stick with the maybe as well. I have to. No, there's no problem. There's no, you know, way to wrap it up one way or the other. Yeah, it's a very cool maybe though, and I and I really mm -hmm. like it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the question of how it could have ended up in Smaug's Horde is um, is so kind of away. a tough one. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, if presumably he probably would have, you know, 
child heir Endel would have put it on, you know, when he fled because he was, you know, fleeing a war zone. So right. how it ended up, you know, being taken, didn't end up in the wardrobe of one of his sons or something. I, I guess it, yeah. yeah, there's some, some problems with it, but I do like the speculation. I think it's a really cool maybe. Because they fled down the, down Syrian, down to where mm-hmm. the, the gleanings were and then, right. you know, further yeah. down to, to Kirdan. By that yeah. point, he would have outgrown it. Maybe they, you know what? Yeah. I'm sure that they, he just put it in like the, the goodwill box in. Sure. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the mail, the mail for tots. The mail. <laughs> Toys for tots, but it's uh, mail. Yeah. They, they, they just have a mailbox that's just sitting out there oh, to collect. My goodness. I we're see gonna, We're going to keep. I see what oh, I can't wait till we get to the Hobbit. We're just going to be doing this the whole oh, time. The whole time. <laughs> don't but, tell, uh, don't tell everybody that they might not want to listen. This is true. <laughs> this is very true. No, it's a it's a good speculation. I love mm-hmm. it. I'm I'm at a maybe with it. I think yeah, it's a cool I thought. Think we have to be at a maybe. Um, but uh, it's actually this this last question about um, how it ended up with Smaug is actually mm-hmm. a good segue into the second question from Donna, which um, which I'll go to now. And it's it's this. It says dragons were loosed upon Gondolin, dragons from the brood of Glaurung. Could Smaug have been among them? I was just wondering if anything had been written about the history of the dragons of Middle Earth. Hmm. Well, so, let me take Smaug this one, I'm going to take yeah, this please, one. Please do. Please <laughs> do. Tonight's the long-awaited Arendelle episode, and you need to save your voice. It's it's the last thing you're going to get a chance to say for the next <laughs> Well, pretty much. I'm going to check out now after this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll come back for the outro. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately, not. Don't I'm do just, that. Don't I do won't. That. I won't. No. I there's there's really no history of the dragons written anywhere, which or at least not that I could find. I mean, I did look a lot of places. Okay, I mean, I looked at the couch, I looked, you know, in the car, um, but what we do have about their origins is what's in the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. and then after the War of Wrath, they disappear again until the Third Age with uh, with Skatha, and then boy, is that a story! Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And then Smaug, and of course other unnamed dragons um, sure. breeding in the Withered Heath, I believe, is is where that's listed. Okay. Um, but but coming back to Smaug, he couldn't have been at Gondolin, uh, as we know. Smaug was a winged dragon. Right. Glaurung was not, and I think it's safe to assume neither was his brood, because the dragons that were winged um, didn't show up until the War of Wrath. So right. these were non-winged dragons that showed up when Gondolin was sacked. Right. So. That's true. So the winged dragons show up at the War of Wrath. So maybe you're thinking, well, maybe Smaug was around then as, you know, part of the brood of Encalagon, and somehow he dodged Eärendil and his magic ship, you know, doing what we're going to do at the end of the chapter here. No spoilers. It's the end of the chapter. No spoilers. Well, you should have read it already. By you now. should have read it, really. Um, but I – and, of course, I can't prove that he wasn't. It's impossible to, to, to prove a negative in this case. But um, mm-hmm. there's a passage from The Hobbit that really makes this seem unlikely. And – it, it is Smaug talking, but I am going to spare you my Smaug voice because I haven't really developed him yet, and you'll have to wait until we get to The Hobbit to hear it. Okay? So, that, that sounds good, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know you weren't expecting to have to get to Smaug so quickly. No, I wasn't. I mean, like, really? Smaug already? I just had to tackle Ulmo, Gurthang, yeah. Glaurung. Okay, I'm yeah. done with the voices for a bit. You need a, you need a break. You <clears throat> deserve a break. Well, my bronchitis says I need a break. But Smaug, mm. Smaug says, Revenge? The king under the mountain is dead, and where are his kin that dare seek revenge? Girion, lord of Dale, is dead, and I have eaten his people like a wolf among sheep, and where are his sons' sons that dare approach me? I kill where I wish, and none dare resist. I laid low the warriors of old, and their like is not in the world today. Then I was but young and tender, now I am old, 
and strong, strong, strong. Thief in the shadows, he gloated. Now, now here's the thing about that. He, he makes these, these comments to Bilbo, and it's um, 2941 of the Third Age. Okay, that so sounds right. So the then that he's referring to when he says, then I was but young and tender, is the sacking of Erebor, which took place, granted, not just the other day. It was 171 years ago in 2770. Okay, yeah. But, but now he's old and strong. So the thing is that this Third Age 2770, right. the sacking of Erebor, is more than 6,200 years after the War of Wrath. Now, right, right. I know we don't know how long dragons typically live if they're not killed in combat, but I can't imagine that in any way 6,200 years old would still be young by any creature's standards, especially if old and strong old and is strong. just 171 right. years later. Yeah that's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's like that last 171 years. Well, you know, that like, extra 5%. Oh, man, those, those were the hard, that was the hard-living years. That was... I was young yeah. when I was 62, but when I was yeah. 64, but I'm old sleeping and... on a sleeping on a pile of gold for 170 more years. That's when I feel old and strong. Yeah. So I, yeah. I have to say it's pretty unlikely. Um, yeah. Any, any thoughts from your end? You know, uh, I, I I only think about this because I read it earlier today, actually, because uh, I'm I'm reading The Hobbit to my son um, oh, right at bedtime, on. and um, there's actually a, a, a passage in there right after Bilbo steals the cup and oh, yeah. wakes yeah. Smaug up. Um, we get a little bit of Smaug, we get a little bit of narration that kind of reveals Smaug's, um, thought process. And it says he would not forget or forgive the theft, not if a thousand years turned him to smoldering stone, Oh, but he wow. could afford to wait. Yeah. So, so if, um, if a thousand years he's nothing is but... enough to turn him to stone, it's, you know, basically turn him, him into this, you know, yeah, kill him, make him die. A thousand years is presumably enough time to, for him to die of old age. Right. Um, there, uh, yeah, 6, I, I would think years. that 6,200 is way too long for a dragon to live. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yep. Sorry. So that one's not a maybe. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Donna. All right. Good, well, those good were, question, though. Because, yeah, they, you know, really, both of them the were good questions. We wonder. Yeah. And we love that stuff. So, uh, But without any further ado, because tonight is is a very special episode of the Branson Pony Podcast. <laughs> it's the episode. In which Sean learns a valuable lesson. <laughs> In which Alan learns a very valuable lesson, not to interrupt Sean talking about Arendelle. Yes. Ouch. Yes. What is this stirp thing in my chest? It's... You I'm sorry, Sean. Do I... not interrupt when I'm talking Arendelle. <laughs> so before we start, do you want to I, – I know you know a gazillion things about this text. Do you want to give us a, an intro like we have for those other big stories? You know, I, I, I actually would love to, and I, I, I promise not to do this with every story from now on, but uh, <laughs> this is another one where it really is important. Um, because with Arendelle, we are talking once again about one of the first stories Tolkien ever wrote in The right. Legendarium. Right. And I know it seems like I keep saying that, but that's <laughs> it's because we're at the end of The Silmarillion. And Which Tolkien was the beginning start, of what he wrote. It was just the beginning of what he wrote. He, he started with those later stories, and the, the yeah. earlier stories were written as backstory, basically, to yeah. you know subcreate this world that the main stories took place in. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we've kind of talked about it, there being three such stories, you know, the fall of Gondolin, Baron and Luthien, and then the children of Hurin. Arendelle's story really is the culmination of the fall of Gondolin, so you know it, it's kind of part and parcel with that one. Yeah. Um, and and Arendelle, uh, I mean, it goes well beyond that, which we'll get to, but. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because Arendel himself was an early creation of Tolkien's. Uh, it was it was basically something he was inspired that he read about when he was a very young man, and he was inspired by. And it, you know, it was probably one of those things that set him on his his first steps towards his own writing. Right. Um, way back in our first episode, wow, that was uh, a while we, ago. 
I know. Yeah. 40. What is this? 43? 43. Today? Yeah, so yeah, 42 episodes ago. Yeah. And a year and I don't know what, about three months? Three months. Yeah. Yeah. 15 months. Wow. Mm. Um, but way back in that episode, we were going through Carpenter's biography and we talked about how in 1913, Tolkien first discovered a set of old English poems that are called the Christ poems mm-hmm. or Christ is old English for Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously religious poems in nature. And there were two lines in one of these Christ poems that caught Tolkien's eye. And, and I'll go ahead and read them again. And I, yeah. I, I think I might actually pronounce them better this time than oh, I, I did. I can't wait. I remember this from the first ago. one. So the two lines that caught his eye were, Ela erendel engla bertast, ofer middenyard monum sended. Wow. And that translates to, um, I hope I got that right, man. I think you did. It sure <laughs> sounded good. second try at that one. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, it translates to, Hail Arendel, brightest of angels, above the middle earth sent unto men. Hmm. Um, so here, we, there we have actually, you know, not only the name Arendel, but also the name middle, middle earth. earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this actually is, is a reference to, literally, it's a reference to the planet Venus, the morning star. Um, and because Venus is the morning star, it was a symbol in Old English poetry of John the Baptist, um, you know, in in the way that the morning star presages the dawn, the coming of, of the course, sun. Of course. You know, the same, that sort of was allegorically applied to John the Baptist presaging the coming, coming of Christ. Christ. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll give you the rest of this in Tolkien's own words. This is actually from letter 297. He says, I was struck by the great beauty of this word or name, entirely coherent with the normal style of Anglo-Saxon, but euphonic to a peculiar degree in that pleasing but not delectable language. Hmm. To my mind, the Anglo-Saxon uses seem plainly to indicate that it was a star presaging the dawn, that is what we now call Venus, the morning star, as it may be seen shining brilliantly in the dawn before the actual rising of the sun. Hmm. Euphonic. I love that word. Isn't that a cool word? Yeah. It's euphonic yeah. to a peculiar degree. Yeah. So uh, obviously, as much as he loved Anglo-Saxon or Old English, he, he knew that it, it's, it's yeah. not necessarily it, the most, you know, sonically pleasing. Or yeah, it wasn't delectable. Pleasing. Right. Right. Exactly. Welsh, on um, the other hand, was delectable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce any Welsh. Oh, goodness, no. I, I wish I could. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So there's this connection between um, Arendel and, and Venus, uh, the morning star. Um, and John the Baptist, you know, I probably should correct something. I think I said maybe a few episodes ago, I think I said back in episode 35 when we talked about Arendel that that Tolkien was the first one to make this connection or that Tolkien kind of, you know, hmm. realized that there was this connection. I've actually been doing some more research um, since then, and I found out that actually the connection was there. Tolkien kind of kind of figured it out among the poetry, but the connection okay. was there. It's not like it's not like he, you know, it's not like he came up with this connection. I see. He he found he found something that was there. It just was there subtly because it was in very in poetry because it, it was right exactly. Okay. So anyway, back to to Tolkien's writing. Not long after he discovered these Christ poems, um, it was in 1914 that Tolkien wrote his first poem about Arendel, which I read in that Tolkien Reading Day episode a few months ago, Those were and that awesome. was yeah. Oh, that's, that's such great poems and and so much fun to read. Yeah. Um, and the first one of those was the Voyage of Arendel, the Evening Star. Right. Um, that's published in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2. Uh, he, it's the evening star in that poem, not the morning star. Um, oh, of course, yeah. if, you kn- right. if you know anything about the planet Venus, you know it's... It's both. It's both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just depends on what time of day it is when it appears in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing probably he just 
you know, Tolkien in the West, you know, things going yeah, on the West sailing way to the West. I think he just, he just loved that image. So I think that's why he focused on the evening star and the sunset. But, sure. um, if you would like to hear me read that poem, listeners, please go back to episode 35. I had yes, because quite I a bit of fun giving with you the time to read it again tonight. No, no. <laughs> oh, ow, I've, got, I've got it here just in case, but no. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, I had a lot of fun reading that and uh, reading a few different poems that are related to A. Rendell and the character. That was a fun episode. You know, I, I, it was. I did, yeah. It was. Reading I, really, I really liked your, your survey of the, uh, the different races too, but well, thank we you. can, we can digress all, I guess. Well, yeah. I'm sure we will digress more, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's what we please, do. If you haven't listened to episode 35, please do. Uh, yeah. Definitely worth the it. voyage of Arendel, the Evening Star, as well as the the last poem that Tolkien wrote, or the almost last poem that he wrote about Arendel. Yeah. So anyway, he wrote that poem, the voyage of Arendel, the Evening Star, but it was still a standalone. He didn't have any mythology to go with it yet. Right. And um, in fact, in in that episode, that Tolkien Reading Day episode, I talked about how, you know, his friend G. B. Smith, his his childhood friend who didn't make it through the Great War, yeah. Um, yeah. he read the poem and he liked it, but he said, "What's it about?" And Tolkien's response was. I don't know. I'll try to find out. And <laughs> Classic Tolkien. it seems to me that in trying to find out, Tolkien created an entire mythology. <laughs> yeah. Well, to answer your question, I need to write for about 60 years. and uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Create an entire world. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. exactly. Just amazing. amazing that he, I mean, you know, and obviously that's a simplification. But yeah, certainly is. to some degree, you know, a lot of this, this whole mythology in some part, you know, Owes oh, yeah. its origin it owes to its this, existence to, to this character. Arendo. Yeah. Yeah. Being Tolkien, though, he couldn't just take this character that he discovered in an Anglo-Saxon poem and, and insert it into a new mythology. No, he Which had is to interesting because he did that with the dwarf names. But That is true. <laughs> but yeah, I digress. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but he actually had <clears throat> to reinvent the name into something that was consistent with his languages. Yeah. And so yeah. I'll go back to letter 297 where he says, but the name could not be adopted just like that. It had to be accommodated to the elvish linguistic situation at the same time as a place for this person was made in legend. So mm. basically what he's saying there is that, you know, I, I could I'll take this character and I got to make a place for him in my mythology, but I also need to make a meaning for this name. So Arendel right. has its own, it's, you know, being a real word in Old English, it has an etymology, which I won't go into here. Um, it's it seems kind of foggy anyway. Um, but he created a new Elvish etymology for it, which uh, derives it from AR meaning sea mm -hmm. and Endil, which means to love or be devoted to. And so his name means lover oh. of the sea. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And we saw, you know, Tuor, obviously, his father had so much love for the sea. He had a, a yeah. relationship with Ulmo. Right. Um, and he transferred that love for the sea um, to his son, both in his name and then also in reality. When. Mm -hmm. with the last chapter we read about the, you know, the song his father sings for him in Nantatherin. And right. um, you know, he sings this song that awakens Arendel's love for the sea. And then, of course, you know, we saw at the end of that chapter, two or Nigel sailed away and they never returned. Mm -hmm. And both of these things left Arendel with uh, just this profound um, call towards the sea and this longing yeah. for the sea. And that's kind of what starts him on his journey. And I guess we'll see that in just a minute with the first passage that we're going to get to. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's a, an awesome introduction to, to the story. And, and thanks for sharing that history. And yeah, yeah now letter. we're going to get to exactly that that profound sea longing right here. So we're going to start with the very first paragraph and then we'll start right. discussing. Bright A. Arendil was then lord of the people that dwelt nigh to Sirion's mouths. And he took to wife Elwing the Fair. 
and she bore to him Elrond and Elros, who are called the half-elven. Yet Eärendil could not rest, and his voyages about the shores of the hitherlands eased not his unquiet. Two purposes grew in his heart, blended as one in longing for the wide sea. He sought to sail thereon, seeking after Tuor and Idril who returned not, and he thought to find perhaps the last shore, and bring ere he died the message of elves and men to the Valar in the west, that should move their hearts to pity for the sorrows of Middle-earth. So yeah, definitely, you know, that sea longing, uh, mm-hmm. and it's 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 blended with those two purposes. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, yeah. He's, he's got, he's, you know, not just to seek for his parents, but also, um, yeah, this, this other purpose of wanting to fulfill this errand. I actually think almost the other way around, like there's this grand purpose of this errand, you know, of, of mm-hmm. bringing the message. But I love that very personal nature too. You know, mm-hmm. here he is, he's, he's wanting to find his mom and dad. Yeah. You know, he's missing them. That's true. That that's. I mean, yeah. I guess I went. Uh, I went in the opposite direction. Yeah. But you're no, right. I mean, I think that they're both well, amazing the, but, purposes. <laughs> but but you're right. I mean, because it's it's such a it's such a brief character sketch. Unfortunately, oh, you know, brief, yeah. we only get a few pages of this character in the Silmarillion, and yeah, it's it's easy to you know you, you kind of gravitate towards the big purpose. Right. You know, the role he plays in the mythology. Yeah, as that's opposed the hero to, quest. You know, this is the right. big big story. Right, but, but you're right. Very you know, human about there's that. Something that, very human about yeah. this, just just missing his folks. You yeah, know, there's a poignancy to it that's that's mm-hmm. really that, that kind of stuck out to me, and that, that maybe mm-hmm. hadn't on previous readings. So yeah, but before and we, I wonder if that's uh, well, and I wonder if that's one of the things that separates. You know, we we've seen things about we've seen characters restless before. We've seen right. characters, you know, unquiet, and I wonder mm-hmm. if you know this, um, if, if the motivation for his unrest is. Partly what separates mm-hmm. him from, you know, the fate of, I don't know, somebody like a Feanor, you know, yeah. somebody or, else who's um, got a, a worse fate. Uh, I was thinking of um, Turgon's sister, Aradel. You know, oh, she yeah, was Aradel, restless yeah. in Gondolin and then she was yeah, restless again. Yeah, that's You know, or yeah. she just didn't, you know, couldn't stay put. Um, yeah. Uh, and neither can Eärendil, but the motivation, you're right, the motivation is different. And here it's, you know, a noble Big, big time noble motivation, yeah. right? And then also yeah. that really very human, very human motivation, very loving, very uh, natural, yeah. you know, motivation. Yeah, yeah. So, so before, we, so ahead. before we get, yeah, no, I was going to say, let's <laughs> let's talk about these parents. Yeah, I was going to say, I really wanted to dive into this uh, genealogy a little bit. I spent a little bit of time putting this together before we move on to kind of how he tries to fulfill these purposes. I want to look, and I didn't do this for everybody else because. It's not relevant for everybody else, but because we're now talking about eventually Elrond and Elros, I felt I felt like we really needed to get a grasp of what they represent in terms of bloodlines. Um, mm-hmm. So he marries Elwing, so we have to go back to figure that out. Uh, her mother is um, is Nimloth, who is descended from uh, Thingol's brother Elmo. I think we talked about that before. <laughs> oh, oh, did we? Oh, did we? <laughs> Tickle me, Thingol. <laughs> Oh man! So so she's um, her mother is one hundred percent Sindar. I <laughs> know I can't. I just can't do it. I can't get it out of her. <laughs> Mr. Noodle, <laughs> come here, Mr. Noodle. Everybody who doesn't have kids has no idea what we're talking about. I know they probably seriously. know Elmo, but maybe not Mr. Noodle. No, no even <laughs> I had to struggle for Mr. Noodle. <laughs> so anyway, take it back. <laughs> sorry. I couldn't help it. The, the, the laughter just came out. I know. So, so well, that's Nimloth, the whole point. Right? So, right. So, her mother's Nimloth, who's descended from from Thingol's brother. 
Her okay. father is Dior, the son of Baron and Luthien. Now, we've, we've right. looked at him before. He's half human through his father, Baron, and all of that is of the house of Beor. The other half is split. He's a quarter Sindar, because his mother was half Sindar through her father, Thingol, and he's a quarter Maya from his grandmother, Melian. So now we know that. So she's mostly Sindar with a, a you know, measurable slice <laughs> yeah. of human and a little bit less sure, Maya. Sure, sure, yeah. So then Eärendil, of course, he's half-elf, half-man, but we looked at that breakdown before, right? He's a little bit of, of that half-elf. Um, a big chunk of that is Vanyar, and a little bit less is Noldor. And then his, his half-man is split, a quarter of the House of Beor and one-eighth each of the House of uh, Hador and Haleth. So that makes their sons, Elrond and Elros, well, it makes them not the half-elven. makes them the 916th elven. <laughs> but that didn't sound right, did it? No, yeah. So they're 56 and a quarter percent elf. And, and that mix, um, most of that, 31 percent, is Sindar. 16 percent of that is Vanyar. And only 9 percent is Noldor. So they're twice as much Sindar as they are Vanyar. And they're four times as much Sindar as they are Noldor. Then, of course, they're 37 and a half percent man. And that mix, again, is, is mostly the House of Beor with 25 percent. And then 6 percent each from the House of Hador and from the Haladin. And then there's the six percent that's Maiar. So it's wow. a really intriguing mix. It's they're not they're they're very little Noldor. They're like twice yeah. as much of the House of Beor as they are of the House. They are as they are Noldor. That's really interesting. Yeah, and the, they only, I mean, there's more Hador and Haladin combined than there is Noldor. <clears throat> so huh. yeah, mostly Sindar. And, well, that and, uh, that really that's, goes that's a long intriguing. way towards explaining you know something like the you know the. The, the primacy of Galadriel in the yes. elves that we see left by the Third Age. I mean, um, you know, yes, it does. I, I always Power. have a tendency to think of like Rivendell as like the cultured, the civilized place. And Lothlorien is a place of beauty and a place of nature. But, it, you know, it's not the lore. Right. That, that, that Rivendell. It's not the, the center of lore that Rivendell is. And so you know, there's something about Rivendell that almost feels more more Noldoran and something and yet, about Lothlorien that feels more, you know, maybe uh, maybe. Yeah. Nandarin or Cinderin, you know, something a little bit more yeah, close to nature. Elf, but right. Yeah. But then, of course, Galadriel is is Noldor. You know, she's yeah. Noldor. And I, I know we looked at her gene, her uh, her genealogy before. Mm -hmm. um, she's not pure, but she's, you know, she's all Calaquendi. That's true. Yeah. That's really interesting. Isn't it? It's just it's, it's just it, fascinating. It, it, well, and it's worth noting also that although mm -hmm. both Arendel and Elwing are part elf, part human. Right. Once again, we see he married up. That's true. She's got the Maya blood. Mm -hmm. She's got the she's and got the more Eldar blood because he's fifty yeah. fifty. Yeah, right. That's a very good point. It's interesting. It, it also is. interesting to me. I, I I thought about this recently. You know, um, there was a discussion on uh, on Facebook recently. We we're talking about looking for sevens in uh, oh yeah in, uh, yeah. in the legendary. I mean, and I picked up on one here that Elrond and Elros actually have seven kindreds in their lineage, which I I don't know that oh, it means yeah. anything. I just thought it was kind of a neat thing. Um, well, it's just more three, of that uh, combined stuff, you know, the better, better yeah, together than apart. Better right. together, yeah. Three three houses of Eldar, three houses of Adain, and then this Mire and strain that um, right that that they're combined uh, that are combined in them. And and no dwarf blood, just just saying. <laughs> no, 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 no dwarf blood at all. Just you know, remember what we've read before <laughs> from one of Tolkien's letters, uh, one fifty three, that that men and elves are biologically speaking the same race. Um, mm -hmm. You remember he said that elves are quote certain aspects of men and their talents and desires incarnated in my little world. So they really right. are the same. So it's not a surprise that the divine plan, as we've talked about for the last several episodes, for the ennoblement mm -hmm. of men 
um, involves the DNA of, of each of the three elf kindreds, plus each mm-hmm. of the three houses of the Adine, and a, and a splash of that, uh, what did you call it once, Maya juice? <laughs> I think I did, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, think uh, I did. In I, very poor I, taste. I probably shouldn't have. Um, yeah. <laughs> you might regret that. Yeah, that's... But yeah, yeah that's it's, a good point. So th- this, yeah, that's true. So this this divine plan for the ennoblement can be seen as um, it's really just a bringing together of these is, these disparate of of threads of one race, right? Um, with a splash of the Maya. Yeah, it's amazing. And again, no mm-hmm. dwarf. So <laughs> we're just gonna keep reminding everybody of that yeah. as we move into the Hobbit. <laughs> we're yeah, we will. So um, what does he do, that is, what does Eärendil do to further his purpose? Well, let me tell you about that, Alan. Why don't you, Sean? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm picking up a little bit into the next paragraph. Mm-hmm. With the aid of Círdan, Eärendil built Vingalot, the foam flower, fairest of the ships of song. Golden were its oars and white its timbers, hewn in the birch woods of Nimbrathil, and its sails were as the argent moon. In the lay of Arendil is many a thing sung of his adventures in the deep and in lands untrodden, and in many seas and in many isles. But Elwing was not with him, and she sat in sorrow by the mouths of Sirion. Arendil hmm. found not Tuor nor Idril, nor came he ever on that journey to the shores of Valinor, defeated by shadows and enchantment, driven by repelling winds, until in longing for Elwing he turned homewards towards the coast of Beleriand. Hmm. My goodness. I, I, I want to focus on that sorrow and that and his return, but I got to start with the beauty of that ship. Oh, this yeah. White ship the ships of songs, yeah. with the golden oars and mm-hmm. the silver sails. Yeah. And I say silver. He said argent. But, th- you know, that actually <laughs> there's a there's a sidebar. You say silver. I say argent. Potato, potato. Um, <laughs> let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> exactly. Let's. Um, this is actually one of the few times that Tolkien uses a word with Latin roots, argent in this case, when mm-hmm. a perfectly good English word, silver, was available. I, oh, I, yeah. I looked yeah. it up. Um, you know, I mean, as you know, silver, of course, has Old Norse and Gothic roots. I mean, it, it really goes way back okay. uh, in the English language, whereas argent comes from, from Latin and Latin. Is, it yeah. came, in, came into English in the Middle English. So much right. more recent word and the kind of word that Tolkien usually would be like, that should never be used. We yeah, should always right. use. What, what do you say? What, the, the, um, uh, the goodliness like, of speech. The craft. goodliness of English speechcraft. Yeah. Um, I did it again. Having an ebook is really nice. I, I just did a quick search for silver, and silver had already been used. Not even counting after this in the Akalabeth and, and of the Rings of Power, but just so far in the Quinta, the word silver had been used fifteen times, and this is the first appearance of the word argent. Of the word argent. Wow. Even though they mean That's... the same thing. That is very word nerd of you. I like ah, that. You know, every once in a while you inspire me. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I like that quite a bit. Um, you know, uh, yeah, that's a good point that you that you raised that. Um, it, it's not a word Tolkien used often. Interestingly, it is a word that he used in that uh, that Voyage of Arendelle poem. Yeah, yeah. That I, I read I uh, that. in Tolkien Reading Day. Yeah, he referred to the he referred again referring to the ship. Um, although he was talking about the timbers, he's called he called it an argent timbered bark. Yes, that's right. So, Talking about the the wood as opposed to the sails, but still uh, in reference to the ship. So there's uh, definitely a, a common thread there. Interesting, but boy, that sorrow, 
the sorrow of, of Elwing. I'm, mm. I know most of our, our listeners, I shouldn't say most, I really have no idea whether our listeners have, have read Unfinished Tales. I, I certainly hope that you, you bought it because you were supposed to in order to get through the tour chapter. To get through the tour stuff. Um, and if you have, you, you also have the tale of Aldarion and Arendis, which is a second oh, age yeah. story uh, that takes place in Numenor. But it kind of made me think of that. This idea yeah, that, you I know, can see here that. he is off in the sea and she's sorrowful by herself. Um, it's, a, it's a sad moment. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it, a, it's a very sad story. It is a very uh, sad story. But it's a very human story. It's a very, a very, it's very personal uh, kind of family strife as opposed to Boy, you're not kidding. You know, sort of the, the world changing stuff that we tend to see in the legendarium. Yeah. But, uh, but you're yeah, right. I, th- I think that's, that's a good catch. I, I didn't, I didn't think about that, but yeah, yeah this kind of kind of presages that or echoes that a little uh-huh. bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, minus the whole ending of that story and, you know, that, that doesn't end well for Aldarian and Arendis. Um, right. But anyway. Interesting. So, but I do love, and, well, and it, part of the reason of that is because he turned, you know, home with yeah. longing for his wife, which and is longing something for his wife. see with yeah. Aldarian and Arendis. But, right. No, it, um, it, it's interesting. You know, it's one of the things I talked about when we read all those poems a few episodes ago was that there's that structure of the poems where, you know, the structure of the journey really, yeah, where he kind of, yeah, that's right. Parts, and he wanders kind of that same structure. It was so yeah. cool. And then he, you know, he, he wanders aimlessly. He, he struggles with something, usually either getting lost or something like that. Right. Um, and then, the and then yeah. returns. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's really interesting. It's really key here that it's not that defeat, it's, it's partly the defeat, but it's ultimately really longing for his wife that sends yeah. him home. Yeah, and, it, it uh, seems like he kept on trying, even though he was yeah. being defeated by these shadows. But it was mm-hmm. until in longing for Elwing, he turned homeward. Yeah. So. And already in just a couple of paragraphs, although, you know, we don't see much of Arendel. You really see a lot about his spirit, his his yeah. heart. You, you know, really his do. longing for his parents, his longing for his wife. He's a... He's, He's a, a family, family guy. man. Yeah. <laughs> so, no wonder you like him so much. It, it's true. It's true. Because <laughs> I am a family man. Yep. Yep. Um, and we thank our families for allowing us to spend inordinate amounts of time recording yes. this podcast. Preparing for and recording this podcast. You, you and... can thank them too. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, we're he turns homeward, and it's a good thing he turns homeward in haste. Uh, we're going to skip the next little bit, and then I'm going to pick up at the almost at the end of the next paragraph, and find out what's happening in his, uh, you know, in his hometown while he's out on the out on the sea. And this mm, yeah. this is a really sorrowful thing. And so there came to pass. Okay, you know, before we read that, let's just sum up the previous paragraph. We won't explain because there's not enough time. We'll sum up. <laughs> Let me explain. No, no. <laughs> uh, basically, they find out that the um, the Silmaril is there and that Elwing has it, so they send you know notes and say you need to give it up. And she says basically, go pound sand. Uh, you know, <laughs> Dior was killed for this, and my husband's out on the ocean. So we'll talk about it later. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's not good enough for the sons of that ever so charming Feanor. <laughs> and so there came to pass the last and cruelest of the slayings of elf by elf, and that was the third of the great wrongs achieved by the accursed oath. For the sons of Feanor that yet lived came down suddenly upon the exiles of Gondolin and the remnant of Doriath and destroyed them. In that battle some of their people stood aside, and some few rebelled and were slain upon the other part, aiding Elwing against their own lords, for such was the sorrow and confusion in the hearts of the Eldar in those days. But Mithros and Maglor won the day, 
though they alone remained thereafter of the sons of Feanor, for both Amrod and Amras were slain. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Third yeah. kin slaying. Just, and and wiped out this last, you know, these these were the gleanings. This was mm-hmm. it. There's so few of them left. We talked so about this few. last time. So few free people left in Beleriand, and they're going to kill each other. Over a, over a rock. Over, over a shiny rock. rock. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it again, we talked before about how, with one exception, Feanor's sons never went after the Silmaril when it was, you know. When it was with when Morgoth. Was with Morgoth. When, when, when Morgoth had all three of them, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, he never, they never went after when they had all three. They went after mm-hmm. him, you know, with the, the, the Nirnaeth, you know, was it originally right. going to be, you know, we're going to go attack Morgoth uh, with the Union right. of Mithros. But other than that, the only times they went after it were when it was with other elves. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, and we're even reminded the sons of Feanor that yet lived. Oh, yeah, because three of them died in the last kin slaying. Right. You know? Yep. You All the seas died in the last one. Yep, yep. The sea bros. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sea bros. Sea bros. Um, yeah. They really Man. were. Aren't they bros? It's, I mean, really. Kelligorm oh, crew. <laughs> those totally. are yeah, ultimately they're bros. They're, they're totally bros. They're totally yeah. bros. And I don't mean that as a compliment. No. Like, um, come on, bro. Let's go get Silmaril, bro. <laughs> Let's go get I think Dior's got the Silmaril now, bro. Let's go get it, bro. <laughs> okay. Wow, it's really bad, man. We're gonna get some. <laughs> we're gonna get some hate mail. Yeah, I cannot sure. tell you the amount of of. Well, not hate mail, but dislike mail I've gotten on Feanor. <laughs> oh hey, man! Hey, it says right here the oath is accursed. Yes, that yes. that is not a word you use. Of the something great that, wrongs achieved by the yeah. accursed oath. Yeah, that that's not a word that it, that suggests any kind of moral ambiguity on the part of the Feanorians <laughs> here. I'm really sorry. Doesn't I agree? But I do love that some of their people were rebelled. Some said, look, I can't do this. And others said, not only can I not do this, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to fight on the side of good. Yeah. But there's not enough of them. And uh, Mithros and Maglor win the day. So the other two are slain. So now the only two sons of Feanor are Mithros and Maglor. Mithros and Maglor. Feanor's gone and the other five sons are gone. From seven down to two. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, you know, so the... Kyrdan doesn't get there in time. Gilgalad doesn't get there in time. Elwing's gone. Her sons are gone. Uh, and we're just summing up here again, not explaining because there's not enough time. Um, they, <laughs> they, um, uh, Elrond and Elros are taken captive. And then Elwing has the Silmaril upon her breast in the, in the Nauglamir and throws herself into the ocean. So they mm-hmm. don't get the Silmaril, but it wasn't lost. And here's what's really cool. The aftermath. What happens? Well, Ulmo gives her the... Ulmo the, steps in. Yeah, Ulmo yeah. again. We saw this with Tuor. Ulmo is deeply involved in making this happen. Mm-hmm. He is yes. He is Iluvatar's instrument in accomplishing this goal. Oh, yeah. And that's something that, you know, we just can't get away from. Uh, and we don't want to get away from it. We want to recognize that. We want to see mm-hmm. that this is how Iluvatar works. There's all these moving pieces. And if it had been... If something else had happened, Ulmo would have done something else. I mean, you know, this mm-hmm. is all... A combination of of that fate and then the free will of 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 Arendil or of Tuor and mm-hmm. now even of uh, of, of Elwing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know he gives her this the shape of a great white bird and I, that's I, so cool. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Such an image, and we get more of that later. So we'll we'll touch more on it then. But um, she falls onto the boat near death, 
and he yeah he doesn't I'm, I'm assuming he's got to know it's her but he doesn't right i mean it doesn't say that he knows he just takes this bird to his bosom and in well, the morning he holds his wife in her own form yeah that's what's so lovely about it i mean they, you know i i know we can't read all this but you know there is like huh, you know as, as a as a white cloud exceeding swift beneath the moon as a oh. star over the sea isn't that um, poetry right there in the middle yeah, of a she's, prose paragraph she's, and she's in bird form, which is cool to begin with. Yeah. And she's just she's flying she's so you know Yeah. So fast that she's basically so fast dead she's when she gets exa- there. exhausting herself. And she's yeah. she swoons when she reaches Arendel in his ship and collapses onto the boat, nigh unto death for the urgency of her speed. Mm. And he just picks her up, takes and her to his her. bosom. Yeah. And and yeah, you, you we're not told that he knew it was her. Yeah. And in fact, I, I mean, maybe he I, maybe he didn't because it says in the morning right. with marveling eyes, That's he beheld exactly her in her own form. So, yeah, I don't think he knew it was her. I think he's just, he might you know, have, he almost. Well, if she had the Silmaril on her that breasts. That Silmaril looks awfully familiar. <laughs> this bird is wearing a necklace that looks a lot like my wife's. Looks like my wife's. Um, um yeah, yeah, I don't know if he knew, but certainly there was at least a know, suspicion. But, but that probably, a li- <laughs> probably, probably, <laughs> probably could have sensed it. The Silmaril uh, might have given it away. Yeah, but yeah, it is but, beautiful. But I it, love that sentiment. It that is, he, and it's it's such a tender moment. I love is. when she wakes up and you know, uh, yeah. her own form beside him with her hair upon his face, and she slept. It's such a her hair upon his face. Isn't that a beautiful? It really is. It personal is a, moment. It is, and it's it's as tender it's as intimate. anything we see with Theron and Luthien. Yeah, Very intimate so. is a good word for it. Yeah. yeah. It's just really I love neat. that. So, again, we're not going to read this next paragraph, but there's um, the this really cool little bit that kind of happens in the midst of all this horrible stuff is that Maglor, who is absolutely sick of the oath, just mm-hmm. sick of it, um, takes pity on Elros and Elrond, and, and he, he ends up loving them, and, and they end up loving him. They they look at him like a dad, basically. Love grew between them, as the text says. Mm-hmm. Um I like That's that. a really interesting thing. A little Stockholm yeah. syndrome right there. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. But really the transition or the transformation of Maglor, yeah, really. That's is, exactly. What we yeah. see. And this this whole chapter is full of this. And, we will see more. You know, much more. Yeah, we will see so much more. Maglor really emerges as, oh, really? You're the good one? Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I yeah. didn't see that coming. You know? I know. I would have always thought Maedros. But, yeah. I mean, Maglor's always been my second favorite, you know? Sure. I mean, if you got to have a favorite amongst the sons of... That guy. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's interesting to see, right, yeah. But it's interesting to see how, you know, Mydros, who's um who's always one of our favorites. Right. I mean what you know, he, yeah. What he what he well, we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah, Maglor's transformation really is one of the one of the great reveals of this chapter, I think. It is, I agree. Um so we've gone through the um the third kin slang and then the aftermath. So if at first you don't succeed, you want to take this next paragraph for us? Yeah, let's let's try try again. <laughs> Yet Eärendil saw now no hope left in the lands of Middle-earth, and he turned again in despair, and came not home, but sought back once more to Valinor, with Elwing at his side. He stood now most often at the prow of Vingalot, and the Silmaril was bound upon his brow, mm. and ever its light grew greater as they drew into the west. And the wise have said that it was by reason of the power of that holy jewel that they came in time to waters that no vessels, save those of the Teleri, had known. And they came to the enchanted isles and escaped their enchantment. And they came into the shadowy seas and passed their shadows. And they looked upon Toleresia, the lonely isle, but tarried not. And at the last they cast anchor in the Bay of Eldamar. And the Teleri saw the coming of that ship out of the east. And they were amazed. 
gazing from afar upon the light of the Silmaril, and it was very great. Then Eärendil, first of living men, landed on the immortal shores, and he spoke there to Elwing and to those that were with him. And there were three mariners who had sailed all the seas beside him. Falathar, Erelant, and Irandir were their names. And Eärendil said to them, Here none but myself shall set foot, lest you fall under the wrath of the Valar. But that peril I will take on myself alone, for the sake of the two kindreds. But Elwing answered, Then would our paths be sundered forever, but all thy perils I will take on myself also. Wow. My goodness. So much there. Wow. Uh, Oh, so much. I love just even Elwing's last line. That's very Luthien. I mean, it 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 makes me think of Baron saying, I'm going to go do this because this is my job. And Luthien saying, I'm going with you. I'm I'm coming with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And it's important to note, the, I mean, the, the role Elwing plays here, you know, we talk so much, and I'm, I'm very guilty of this, this being the story of Eärendil, you know, but it is the story of Eärendil and Elwing. It is absolutely. their quest. Absolutely. It is their quest together. He absolutely, I mean, you can see the Silmaril was the reason he made it as far yeah. as he made it. And he, he would not have, have the Silmaril had she not jumped into the right. sea and then been, you know, mortified. Right. Um, <laughs> is that a word, mortified? It is now. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Um, and you know, the only other word I can think of is maybe aviated, but that doesn't, (laughs) that has another meaning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Um, I, we have another instance of the Silmarils responding to circumstances. You know, we've talked about inanimate objects and semi-sentience and, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the things we talked about was the Silmarils responded to Luthien's voice, you know, in the darkest dungeons of Morgoth. Well, here the light grows greater as they draw into the West. Um, yeah. There is something. Going home, it gets brighter. Exactly. There's something in the Silmaril, some characteristic of the Silmaril that enables it to sense its location, mm-hmm. um, and and to be able to to respond to external stimuli. Yeah. So it's got a I, GPS device and a speaker, or a microphone, yeah. or or maybe Sorry. some sort of a you know I don't know um, an affinity uh, you know I, yeah like was, an alchemical affinity or something like that you know alchemical. just I, mean, I know. I don't know. I mean, I, it's something like a a resonance yeah. or something like that. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Um, but yeah, um, I, I mean, I was obviously being sarcastic with a GPS device, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I hear what you mean. And yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's interesting. I, and I don't know where that, you know, what what that does in terms of our discussion of of semi sentience in these objects. But yeah, uh, it is intriguing to see it. You know, another example of it and how it it responds mm-hmm. to, in this case, its location and and its travel. Yeah. Well, um, and I hate to draw this comparison, but it reminds me a bit of the ring. Although I guess the ring yeah, is different because opposite. we know that it has sentience, you know. Or well, yeah, we it know was that it's imbued, been imbued with with Simon's yeah. power. Yeah, um, you know, so that is different. Yeah, this is the, almost. It, it, I almost want to say this is more because not of the stone itself, but because of its hallowing. You know, we don't see this as a characteristic mm-hmm. of the hallowing. Right, the hallowing is so that nobody could touch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't immortal and had you know clean hands and was, you know, not of evil will. But I wonder if it's that hallowing that is what enables it, it to, gets, to be... As it gets closer, maybe, yeah. To the source of its hallowing. Right. Yeah. I don't know. And, we'll, we'll and maybe know. that, and I hate to use this word resonate again, but I'm going to, maybe that yeah. hallowing sort of, um, you know, kind of resonates in it or calls something up out of it that as it gets closer to home, yeah, it, maybe. Um, it was right. Oh, it's interesting. It is interesting. I love the little kind of... Um, it's not alliterative, but it's repetitive. This, 
They came to the Enchanted Isles and escaped their enchantments. Escaped the enchantment. They yeah. came into the shadowy seas and passed their shadows. Mm-hmm. I love that. I don't yeah. know why. I yeah. just do. That's cool. It's, uh, it's got a nice repetition to it. It does. You know, it's, yeah. And it's, it's you know, kind of defeating these little hurdles. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's reminding you that. You get a and sense I love... of, like, achieving each, you know, yeah. achieving each level of the quest. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Arendel the game. You could see those being the different <laughs> levels of the game. Dude, I would totally play I to- that game. I passed the big. shadowy seas so oh, fast. That level was so easy. Did you Did you get the Silmaril yet? I can't, left, I left, can't right, up, down, up, down. <laughs> B B X. That's how you do it. I need to get the O wing cheat, man. I, I, don't, I don't know where to get them. <laughs> the O wing cheat. Um, Tolaresia, and and they just look at it and go, "Well, I'm not stopping there. No, nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm gotta I'm keep moving. going. Got to keep moving." Um, and then, of course, I understand that uh, if you guys have three more sons, you're naming them Falathar, Erelant, and Irondir. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Does probably. your wife know this? Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you have those well, names memorized? Yeah. Well, she she agreed to let me name one of our kids after the evening star, so, you know, there's that. There is that. <laughs> oh, my. Man. Oh, I do love goodness. those names, though. They are. They're cool names. They're kind of cool. Yeah, but it you know it's funny because we get the names and then we only see them again once and that's <laughs> and to say goodbye. And it's shit. kind of like, um, oh goodness, there were some other names. The, the all the people in Barrier's company that that's one. Oh you know, yeah, we, yeah. Gorlam yeah. the unhappy was the only we, one. We named them all, and then we, the only one we see again is Gorlam. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, kind of like red shirts, except they don't. In this case, they don't die. So I guess that's handy. <laughs> um, so so she so she does you know she says you know I'm I'm coming with it's you. It's kind of the opposite does. of die, really. Yeah, they, yeah you're uh, right. Well, they got, yeah, they got sent uh, safely back home. They did. They absolutely did. So, um, so she she jumps in. He's oh man, I wish he hadn't done that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the, but the but the sailors stay there, and then uh, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and read this next paragraph. Then Arendil said to Elwing, "Await me here." For one only may bring the message that it is my fate to bear. And he went up alone into the land and came into the Calakiria, and it seemed to him empty and silent. For even as Morgoth and Ungoliant came in ages past, so now Eärendil had come at a time of festival, and well-nigh all the elven folk were gone to Valimar, or were gathered in the halls of Manway upon Tenequitil, and few were left to keep watch upon the walls of Tyrion. And you don't know how close I came to saying Tenequetl. Thanks to me trying to poison my mind last week. I didn't do anything. I was I was thinking positive thoughts. Really? I, I was, think you were thinking Tenequetl. No, I was Tenequetl, thinking Tenequetl. positive. I was thinking Arendel thoughts Quixicotl, for you. Quixicotl. Aztec, Aztec, Aztec. <laughs> I could hear the ES, I could hear the messages in my head. Just kidding. Yeah. That's um, all right. I got the. Uh, I got the. I got the tuna in the next one. So. <laughs> so I just want you to notice once again. Major event happens at a time of festival. Time of festival. Yeah. This time this at least be, it's a good event. Yeah, this might be the only time something good actually happens yeah. at a festival. Yeah, but what I mean, what have we seen? We've seen the attack on Gondolin. We mm-hmm. saw, of course, the attack on the trees. And even before yeah. that, Morgoth's uh, uh, Morgoth's creation uh, of the tomb. marring of Ardo with the, well, I guess the, well, the, no, not the marring, toppling of the lamps. Yeah, the, the toppling of the lamps, of the, lamps the creation of a tomb. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it? Yeah. No, not the toppling of the lamps. That was after. Was it after? Yeah, the creation of a tomb. No, he came in. The creation in of a tomb. No, happened uh, after Tolkus's wedding. Night. Right, right. When he was uh, sleeping, weary and content. Um, yeah. 
And then after that is when he came and, and toppled the lamps. Okay, so that was it. I don't think that was still, I don't think a festival was still going on. But yeah, so, you know, party time is also. I don't know, those Valar know how to throw a party. Boy, they sure do. It could have been, a, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. No, that was it. Um, yeah, tons of bad things happened at festival, at the time of festival. But and now we uh, get a good thing. Now it's a good thing. And I, I kind of feel like this is a sign that this, you know, the world is kind of turning yeah. a corner. We can still have festivals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can still have nice things. We can sometimes. We can, still have a, we can still have a good time every once in a while. There you go. So, um, so he does, you know, make it into um, uh, into Tyrion because nobody's really there. I, mm-hmm. I do love that they were either in Valimar or they were gathered in the halls of Manway. I, I have a feeling that's where the the, the um, ah the the, 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 the OMG the Vanyar Manway, the Vanyar. I couldn't remember their yeah. name for a moment. <laughs> So the re- the remaining Noldor and they're, they're, I've poisoned you with that too. They're forever. They really the have. They're forever the OMG Manway <laughs> clan. <laughs> I feel so bad. But you know we never really do see them except we'll see them no. again later in this chapter. Yes, won't we, we will. Yes, we will. And they are not to be trifled with. So, um, no. all right. But what... yeah, you, you figure they must have the VIP badges at the uh, oh at yeah, the park. absolutely. No, right yeah. here, friend of Manway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm on the list. Seriously, Ingwe, <laughs> king of you know, Ing- son of no one, son, son of no one, firstborn. <laughs> uh, so they, he does get in there. What happens when he gets into the town? All right. But Eärendil climbed the green hill of Tuna and found it bare, and he entered into the streets of Tyrion, and they were empty, and his heart was heavy, hmm. for he feared that some evil had come even to the blessed realm. He walked in the deserted ways of Tyrion, and the dust upon his raiment, and his shoes was a dust of diamonds, and he shone and glistened as he climbed the long white stairs, and he called aloud in many tongues, both of elves and men, but there were none to answer him. Therefore he turned back at last towards the sea, but even as he took the shoreward road, one stood upon the hill and called to him in a great voice crying, Hail, Eärendil, of mariners most renowned, the looked-for that cometh at unawares, the longed-for that cometh beyond hope. Hail, Eärendil, bearer of light before the sun and moon, splendor of the children of earth, star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. That voice was the voice of Aonwe, herald of Manwe. And he came from Valimar and summoned Arendel to come before the powers of Arda. My goosebumps are only just now fading. <laughs> that moment when oh. Aonwe hails him is perhaps the high point of the entire book in my mind. It, 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 it pro- yeah, it definitely is for me. I mean, I think it is the most just astonishing visual, the oh. most astonishing dialogue. And thank you so much for for, for, letting uh, you not, read that. for letting me have that one and not, not fighting me <laughs> oh, over it. that was tough. I, I knew from the very beginning, though. I knew I was I was lucky to not have this as a solo episode for you. So uh, I'm just happy to be here. I'm, it's a pleasure <laughs> just to be nominated. <laughs> it is it is good to have you here with me. I'm glad. Thank you, Sean. Um, I, yeah. You're right about the visual. I mean, you, you, you're seeing this beautiful city, but it's empty. And you can mm-hmm. see the close-up on his feet with the... The dust the shoes, on his raiment and his shoes is a dust of diamonds. 
He's climbing this long white staircase, calling out in in Sindarin and in in Nodorin, you know, or Quenyan, and um, and 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 perhaps even in whatever you know speech men are using, I guess, Adonaiic or whatever they're using by this point. Yeah, yeah, and and the fear. I I love this, you know, this this kind of fear, this this heavy heart, this fear that he has. That can can you imagine? He's walking these empty streets and he's thinking. Did Morgoth come back Did here? Did Morgoth? Yeah, right. right. Has has even Valinor been been overtaken? Oh, because what? That's that's all he's known. He's all he's yeah. known is living life among these gleanings of men and elves. You right. know, this this world that is dying, that is absolutely and, getting wiped out by evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, just and this, but that moment, boy, that moment where Aonwe hails him is yeah. so beautiful. Oh, it's amazing. I love that yeah. line, the looked for that cometh at unawares, the mm-hmm. longed for that cometh beyond hope. We're going to talk so much yeah. more about that, but yeah. Oh, I, just beautiful. And it's, and it's, I think it's very significant that it only happens. Aonwe only appears to him after he turns back. Yeah. I think there's something right. in that, that he just, he, he thinks he's failed. He thinks he's come here and that there's nothing. Can you imagine oh. what he must be feeling? Oh, to think that I've made it all this way. I, I made it through the shadows and, and I made now it I'm going to turn around and go back. And yeah. now I'm going to turn around and go back because there's nobody here. There's no help. There's this, this hope that, that we've looked for from the West is right. not here and to turn back. And then that's the moment when Aonwe appears yeah. to him. Oh, it just gives me chills talking about it. Mm. And that line at the end of Aonwe's hail where he, where he describes who mm. Aerendil is, it, it so presages this, this, what we'll end up seeing him do in terms of being the morning star, the star in the darkness, mm-hmm. the jewel in the sunset, and radiant in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's the morning star right there. Yeah. That's Venus. It's the, it is, you know, in the sunset, it's this jewel. You can see it, you know, as the sun goes down, you can see it right away. And in the morning, right. you see it before the dawn comes. Um, right. Man. But yeah, he is summoned. He, has he is to summoned. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, <clears throat> he's come this far. You know? Yeah, and uh, you know, unlike Fanor, he comes willingly. Yeah, <laughs> being yeah. summoned yeah. to him is—he's not being summoned to the principal's office. He's no, he, uh, though. Who knows? You know, although from his he doesn't know at this point, does he? Yeah, yeah. all he knows yeah, is that true. he has a message to deliver. That's all he knows. Mm-hmm. He, for true. all he knows, he's going to be you know wiped out. Um, he's going, yeah. They're going to say, we're "Okay, not thanks for to be here. Thanks for delivering the message, and now you're you're going to be killed because you yeah. don't belong here." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. um I'm going to read the next little bit. Then the Valar took counsel together, and they summoned Ulmo from the deeps of the sea. And Eärendil stood before their faces and delivered the errand of the two kindreds. Pardon, he asked for the Noldor, and pity for their great sorrows, and mercy upon men and elves and succor in their need. And his prayer was granted. It is told among the elves that after Eärendil had departed, seeking Elwing, his wife, Manda spoke concerning his fate, and he said, Shall mortal man step living upon the undying lands and yet live? But Ulmo said, For this he was born into the world, and say unto me, Whether is he Eärendil Tuor's son of the line of Hador, or the son of Idril, Turgon's daughter of the elven house of Finway? And Mandos answered, Equally the Noldor, who went willfully into exile, may not return hither. But when all was spoken, 
Manwe gave judgment, and he said, In this matter the power of doom is given to me. The peril that he ventured for love of the two kindreds shall not fall upon Eärendil, nor shall it fall upon Elwing, his wife, who entered into peril for love of him. But they shall not walk again ever among elves or men in the outer lands. And this is my decree concerning them. To Eärendil and to Elwing and to their sons shall be given leave each to choose freely to which kindred their fates shall be joined and under which kindred they shall be judged. My goodness. <laughs> my goodness. What, um, what a debate. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Makes me think of that really cool debate on the statute of Mary of uh, yes, Finway and Muriel. Muriel and Finway. Yeah, you know they they each make really valid points. Yeah, uh, but yeah. but Manway in the end has the decision to be made. Yeah, but I love how Mandos always had to have the last Man, word. Man, yeah, Mandos. Is, well, <laughs> well, even if he's Noldor, Noldor, he can't come back. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the Noldor because, aren't welcome here any more than yeah, men are. So. Fine, he's not a man. Oops. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Point, Mandos. Exactly, um, except you know that, that Mandas still isn't remembering that um, that that at least let's see. So Elwing is mostly Sindar, Eärendil is actually more Vanyar than Noldor. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, that's true. <laughs> it's like, come on, dude. Yeah. Um, Mandas just being difficult. Mandas exactly is just being difficult, but <laughs> but I, I, I love Ul- I love Olmo's work. I mean, yeah. not only Olmo's, you know challenge about well whose son is he really but right you know this for this he was born into the world purpose you know yeah Fate. that's that's the that's the purpose for which he was created and yeah. and that's where this you know taking us back to aonway's words you know the the look yes. for that cometh at unawares the longed for that cometh beyond, beyond hope. hope i mean how much that echoes the words of ulmo that we saw in um yeah, of tour and is coming to gondolin that's why that you know, section was so important for us to read i'm, I'm really oh, glad yeah. we did I, I know it was hard yeah. to do an extra episode but man that conversation between ulmo and tour so yeah. crucial yeah it really is to really understand, to understand the significance this. of mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah and Ulmo's words in that were the hope that they have not looked for and have not yeah. prepared i mean that is almost exactly that's the same exactly. thing yeah so so deep so meaningful um Mm-hmm. I just I love this. And I love it's so short that he delivers the errand. He asks for pardon and for pity and for mercy and for succor. And mm-hmm. his prayer was granted. His prayer is granted. That's it. Done. End yeah. of story, you know. I mean you could you yeah. could wrap it right there, you know, but you don't, thankfully. Um I just amazing. Amazing mm-hmm. stuff. I this is That's, such a beautiful section. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. You know, again, obviously, this is a, a very short chapter to get such an important mm-hmm. story in, just the nature of the Silmarillion. Yeah, it's very but, dense. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it is interesting that we don't hear, you know, there's no there's no arguing. He doesn't have to present no. a case or anything. He just asks, yeah. and, and and we see it granted. seems that he, he grants it. They grant it. And yeah. um, it kind of tells you that, you know, this is fated. You know, and they were ready is, for it. You know, they were, yeah, that's a good we point. We go back to Tuor, yeah. and and what do we we find out that? Uh, let's see, because Ulmo went back to the to the Valor and said we really need to help them out, and the Valor were like, no, and, no, it's going to yeah. have to come from somebody who from somebody know, who can represent both, speaking on behalf of both kindreds. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, so I think and they're they were like, just oh, waiting. okay, well here he is, and that's and, why you know, the, the, and he the, proved his he proved his worth just by getting there, really. Yeah. By, well, and which know, is only by, feasible through the Silmaril. Yeah. Right. That's why that's why this is such an important story. You know, we, we 
I know we're going to get to this, so I don't want to go too deep. But, you know, you talked about how this is kind of like the postscript to the tour story. But really, it's the postscript to the other two, too. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, because yeah, the Nauglamir, which the Nauglamir comes out of the tale of Turin, because that's, that's what Turin brought from the, the, the Horde and uh, in Nargatron. Yeah. So that's a big part of the story. But then you also have to look at Baron and Luthien because Baron he's married Luthien to Elwing. And without Elwing, and the story doesn't happen. So it's really the culmination of all three. Right. That's really true. And without Baron and Luthien getting the Silmaril in the first place, this right. doesn't happen. And Absolutely. this is the this is the final fulfillment of um, bringing the Silmaril back to where it belongs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is. Wow, that's a good point. But yeah, it's such it a is the culmination of all, of all three. three stories. You're right. It's such a it's such a that's why this is so masterfully done. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's true. You, you wade through and and I say that lovingly because of course I really love every chapter in this story except for the map chapter. Um, <laughs> but you wade through some of this difficult stuff because you know the payoff's going to be worth it. You yeah. Know, you get to this chapter and you read it and all the threads come together. Finally, everything everything comes makes together. sense. Everything, everything clicks. Mm-hmm. It really does, and it's it's so well done. But it's so fast because, like you said, it's a short chapter. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, my goodness. So I've I've got a big passage for you to read, a very important passage. But before we do, I want to sum up. <laughs> I'm going to keep using that, that <laughs> term. I'm going to sum up the next paragraph. There's not enough time to explain. Um, that she while he's in there talking you know, business with the Valar, she's actually out chatting with the Tillery. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd gone gone down to the sea by Alqualonde. Um, and so she, you know, befriends them and they listen to her stories, which is really important because we're going to find out later, you know, what what that uh, helps the Tillery decide to do. But um, right. I thought that reminded me, though, about her, her bloodline because she is um, – She's mostly Sindar, mostly which Sindar. of course really yeah. is Teleri. I mean, Teleri. that's that's yeah. the Teleri that didn't make it. Uh, mm-hmm. So she's related, right? She's descended through her mom yeah. from from yeah. Elmo, the brother of of Elway and Olway. You right. Know, and and Elway's dead. You know, all those little tiny stabbings well, and... in his legs from the dwarves. <laughs> he just bled out. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. And, but yeah, and, I mean, she, and she's only she's only a few generations removed from right her grandfather she's like, I think, Thingol. Three generations from. Well, yeah, two generations from Thingol and three generations on her mother's side from uh, Elmo. Right. So, yeah, yeah, she's like a grand and, and, grand niece of the king. Yeah, yeah. So, well, grand grand granddaughter, d- right? No, she's well of, of Thingol? not of Thingol. Oh, I was Thingol? thinking of Olway. I was thinking of, oh, of their oh, king. Oh, of, of Olway. The, okay, yes, yes. Of, yes. The, of the Lord of the Teleri. Yeah, right, right. Um, I'm I'm thinking. I'm actually thinking back to when Elway was the king of the Teleri, and that's true. You know, he was the co-king. Yeah, yeah, and here's she's this, only the you know, granddaughter, granddaughter of, yeah, of the him, granddaughter. and and they're they're thinking, oh, how is how is Elway? Oh, well, oh, wait, no, I guess it would so be great granddaughter, right? Because Luthien's daughter, Dior's grandson, Dior's grandson she's the great granddaughter. So, yes, you're right, yeah. you're right, great granddaughter. Um, but I think she's also three generations from Elmo on her mom's side, if I'm not mistaken. Right. I have to look that okay. up. But anyway, I I just really th- that needed to be mentioned real quick. That's really we'll significant. That yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. But now we get another beautiful passage that you had to pry from my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are such a wonderful co-host. Have I have I told you that lately? <laughs> the checks in the mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then Arendil said to Elwing, "Choose thou, for now I am weary of the world." And Elwing chose to be judged among the firstborn children of Iluvatar because of Luthien, and for her sake. Mm. Eärendil chose alike, though his heart was rather with the kindred of men and the people of his father. 
Then, at the bidding of the Valar, Aonwe went to the shore of Amman, where the companions of Eärendil still remained, awaiting tidings. And he took a boat, and the three mariners were set therein. And the Valar drove them away into the east with a great wind. Mm. But they took Vingalot and hallowed it, and bore it away through Valinor to the uttermost rim of the world. And there it passed through the door of night, and was lifted up even into the oceans of heaven. Mm. Now fair and marvelous was that vessel made, and it was filled with a wavering flame, pure and bright. And Eärendil the mariner sat at the helm, glistening with dust of elven gems, and the Silmaril was bound upon his brow. Far he journeyed in that ship, even into the starless voids, but most often he was most often was he seen at morning or at evening, glimmering in sunrise or sunset, as he came back to Valinor from voyages beyond the confines of the world. Hmm. My goodness, what man! <laughs> wow. Um, so. We talked about the morning star, the evening star. So here we have the other great astronomical myth of yeah of the legendarium. Exactly, took us all totally. the whole book to get to it. Yeah, but, we did set a moon already, but it took us like another three hundred pages yeah. to get to to Venus. Yeah. Oh Venus. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, but this 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 choice, man. This is I know this is powerful. I mean, oh. Man. He asks her to choose for love of her. Again, he's a family man. Yeah. He, you know, he, he wants her to choose and she chooses to be with the elves. She chooses the, the, you know, the, the, the life of the Eldar. Right. Um, and I find it fascinating that it's because of Luthien. Now, I, mm-hmm. because of course Luthien chose to be counted among the men. So it, it, I find interesting it interesting point. that her rationale for choosing to be counted among the elves is the woman who chose to be counted among men. That's very interesting. I, but, but I mean, she, she's the elven, you know, she, she's the one from whom she's descended that's so, you know, powerful. That's um, just special to her. She must have exactly. just had a, yeah, felt yeah. really. Her, you know, her grandmother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? Whether, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And, and, that's, and that's why she chose it. But, um, and uh, yeah, uh, for her sake, Arendil chose alike. Well, of mm-hmm. course, he's not going to choose to be parted from her, but. No. That would have been but hard. he really wanted to but he really wanted to be with men. He he Yeah. And so there is there is kind of a sacrifice here, isn't there? Very I mean, much he sacrifices so. his own choice for her. And uh, yeah, obviously yeah, he's he's And ultimately something. his future. I mean, I don't know what they would have done yeah. with this I I wonder if he had chosen to be among men, could he have done what they're going to do with him here, which is essentially an you know, eternity Sailing the skies, basically making him immortal and letting him sail the skies right. you know, forever. Yeah, that would be a, a a terrible curse if he were to be counted among men, because that yeah. would be essentially yeah. taking away the gift of Iluvatar. So, right, um, you know, in in a way, he had he certainly had to choose that in order to then play this very important to do, role to, for for what what happened to right. happen. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because otherwise he would have had to just be you know let his life end, and they would yeah. have to figure out what else to do with the Silmaril. But um, I love this, that they don't say, all right, well, let's, you know, maybe we get a big hammer and figure out how to break it. You know, it's just what we tried to do so many years ago. Um, they, they instead decide to do something amazing with it. Yeah. And, and share it with the world. Uh, and we'll see, we'll see shortly um, exactly how, how the world what, what reacts. That happens, what happens to that. Yeah, that's yeah. great. But I love this. So the Silmarils on his brow. He journeys, you know, all the way into the starless voids. 
The picture is beautiful, glistening with the dust of elven gems. There's that that mm-hmm. diamond dust again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a lovely image. This idea that you know there's this there's this wavering flame. They, they the, the Valar set this wavering flame into the ship, but then it's it's that and the Silmaril, I guess, that sort of mm-hmm. shine off of this dust of elven gems, and that's what oh, makes him so bright. What an image! Oh, an it's image, so right? such a cool image. And I love that you know just like the Silmarils themselves, they took Vingalot and hallowed it. So they, yeah. you know, they they made it this sacred thing, uh, mm-hmm. and, and presumably, you know, also included some sort of bubble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, some sort. I of... can't breathe. I can't breathe. <laughs> my eyeballs are popping out of my head. Yep. Help! Somebody catch my lungs. They're coming out. Maybe, maybe, maybe they maybe they made a spacesuit. <laughs> He's not glistening with the dust of elven gems. It's that silvery it's, foil it's, stuff it's, that they, <laughs> that the early astronauts wore. Oh man, yeah. Um, so we're not going to read what happens with Elwing, but she stays behind in this white tower that's built for her, and she learns bird talk. And I this co- so brings cool. us back to when she'd been turned into a bird. So yeah. they teach her how to fly, and she has wings. <laughs> I mean, Red Bull gives you wings, but apparently, <laughs> apparently, so does so does, so does hanging out in Valinor with, so does, with birds. With birds, um, so and, funny. But I, I love that because it's, it enables her to go and fly to meet him. Uh, yeah, you know, when he's coming yeah. back. Um, yeah, you know, so they get a, a quick little, um, I don't know, conjugal visit before he has visit. to go back into the sky. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's been a long day at work, honey. Um, I've only got twelve hours. I've only got. Um, but, but what a it's beautiful a, sight. I, I, I know oh, yeah. I'm going to read the next couple paragraphs, but this line is so beautiful I have to read it, that the, the far-sighted among the elves that dwelt in the lonely isle would see her like a white bird, shining, rose-stained in the sunset, as she soared in joy to greet the coming of Vingalot to Haven. Oh, that's Man, so that's cool. so cool. That <laughs> just really is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that so she lovely. was, you know, she was once a bird, so, or stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, I guess. Uh, and so she learns their, their language. Um, I think that one went over my head. <laughs> uh, it was a bird, or I played one on TV. Um, yeah, I. It's pretty cool. I love that, you know how that yeah, that plays back to what Ulmo did in terms of of turning her into a or giving her a mm-hmm. bird form. Not really turning her into yeah. one, but giving her a form of a bird, which mm-hmm. is different. Yeah, but it's um, so cool. It really is. But I'm going to go ahead and read the next couple paragraphs because they're really important. Now, when first Vingalot was set to sail in the seas of heaven, it rose unlooked for, glittering and bright. And the people of Middle-earth beheld it from afar and wondered. And they took it for a sign and called it Gil-Estel, the star of high hope. And when this new star was seen at evening, Maedhros spoke to Maglor his brother, and he said, Surely that is a Silmaril that shines now in the west? And Maglor answered, If it be truly the Silmaril which we saw cast into the sea, that rises again by the power of the Valar, then let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many, and is yet secure from all evil. Then the elves looked up, and despaired no longer, but Morgoth was filled with doubt. Hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Gil Estel. <laughs> the star of high hope. Of high hope. And again, there's that word, Estel. You know, we've mm-hmm. talked about the different kinds of hope. This is yeah. the star of yeah, high hope. Yeah, here it's hope. translated as high hope. I, I, I like that uh, translation. Too. It's a nice, simple cool? translation. 
It yeah. is. It really is. It's it's that that like you you know we've talked about that difference before. It's not the wow. I sure hope the weather you know clears up. Right. <laughs> right. This is a, a certain hope. You know, a hope. It's it's hope based on something. And, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's a hope that's you know tied up in faith and belief and a lot of different you yeah. know a lot of different things and um, trust that Illuminatar's plan is going to be accomplished. Yeah. And because of all that, it's a very hard word to define simply, and that's why I really like, <laughs> or not to define, but to translate simply. Yeah, I like this high hope. But high you know, hope certainly works it. well, doesn't it? Yeah. And boy, the response of Maglor and Mithros mm, is really, yeah. you know, it's foreshadowing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I love that they recognize it right away. Oh yeah. You know, almost had and, to not. And Mithros doesn't have to say what he's thinking, but no. but you can tell. Um, He's like, oh, it's it's there, up in the um, sky. Yeah, <laughs> we, we how, can't. How are we, we going to get to that? Maybe let's let's see if we can build a really tall ladder. <laughs> um, we don't uh, know how to build any ships. Certainly not no, any flying ships. No. Um, but uh, Maglor's response, though, is is what I really love yes. here. Let's I mean, just be glad that it's where it is. Yeah, secure from all evil and its glories, seen now by many. And that really wow. is the point. You know, it makes me think, go go all the way back to Feanor. He didn't want it to be seen by many. He got all kept nasty about in a it box. and kept it yep. locked up because he he begrudged the sight of it to all but yep. his sons. Yep, that jealous, possessive love that he had. Man. And, and, and you see that Maglor doesn't have that. He's finally turned around, yeah. you know. And Man, he says, awesome. you know what, let's just let, let's just let the world enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, because at least it's safe. The whole point about us trying to get them back is because we didn't want Morgoth to have them. Well, guess That's what? True. Morgoth doesn't have this one. That's true. That's yeah. true. I mean, sure, we we promised that we would bring, you know, rain vengeance down on anybody. Um, you know, be mm-hmm. he man, Vala, elf, or, you know, or, you know, man yet unborn or any creature yeah, whatever. heretofore yeah, whatever unnamed, but that may eventually <laughs> exist. But, but notwithstanding but, the yeah, previous paragraph. Not limited to, but... Yeah. I mean, it's such a man. Yeah, I, I do love I do love Maglor's response. Mm-hmm. It's really neat. Um, but but the, what about Morgoth? Yeah, what about Morgoth? So we're gonna we're gonna sum up the next paragraph uh, that that Morgoth um, doesn't think anything's ever gonna happen. He's sitting over there monologuing to his chiefs, going, <laughs> "I've separated them from the Valar and." They're going to sit over there and they're never going to come over here. This place is ours. Mm-hmm. And so he has no clue that they're coming. But mm-hmm. the Valar prepare for battle. The Vanyar march beneath their white banners. So do the Noldor that, that never left, the ones who were behind Finarfin. Um, but interestingly, the Teleri were unwilling to go because they remembered yeah. the slaying at the Swanhaven and the rape oh. of their ships. Oh, yeah, they did. Yes, they do. <laughs> But, mm-hmm. you know, because Elwing had befriended them, they sent mariners enough to sail the ships. So they are, you know, they're piloting the amphibious assault vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> but they're keeping their feet wet. They are not going on, on you know, into Middle Earth. Well, and you know what's interesting? I, I've just now thought about this. But we talk about, you know, the slaying at, at Aqualande. I mean, we've read an entire book of stories that have yeah. happened since then. But yes, remember, it's only been a little over 500 years. That's true. That so, you know, for elves that have lived, you know, how many years do we figure there were before the rising thousands, of the sun and the moon? Like yeah. thousands and thousands of years that that the elves had lived in, in Valinor. So these are Teleri who have lived for thousands of years. Yeah. 500 years is not that long to them. Of course they remember no, this. No. 
Um, I mean, you know, so, th- these are some of them are presumably survivors of the battle. Others might be, sure, uh, yeah. you know, descendants of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've I've talked about this before. I know that some have called called this an exaggeration, but it certainly seems to me like uh, Feanor's actions, you know, practically border on, uh, um, you know, genocide, attempted genocide, mm-hmm. right? Trying to wipe that, out yeah. an entire kin, and 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 I know that that's probably over overstating it to some extent, but. He was willing to wipe out every last tillery if he needed to. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. If he had to, he would. But, you know, so some survived and, and the rest would be descended from those who survived. So they certainly remember what happened. And it wasn't just the kinsling. It was it was the burning of the ships, the theft mm-hmm. and burning of the ships. Yep. Um, so, you know, once again, if they just brought it, the ships it reminds, back. <laughs> it reminds you of the way they burned bridges with, you know, all the Noldor and Beleriand. Oh, yeah. you know, Absolutely. How, and, how, and, and, and even Thingol, wasn't it? That, you know, they just would not. Yeah. Nobody would. Nobody will work with the Sons of Feanor anymore. No, and, and, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. For good reason. You can't get work uh, in Hollywood anymore. Nobody will work with them. That's right. They're blacklisted. Yeah. Um, and so, I know it's weird for me to read the next passage as well. But we we've had so many of the good stuff, <laughs> of the good passages. That I'm good. I, I don't need to read anything. So else I'm going to I'm going to read podcast. this. Oh no, you still get you still get. <laughs> no, I know one. I will. But I'm just saying I'm I'm happy. I'm fine. I'm content. <laughs> I think you got a couple more. But I, I'm going to read the um, uh, this first part of the battle. So. Of the march of the host of the Valar to the north of Middle-earth, little is said in any tale, for among them went none of those elves who had dwelt and suffered in the hitherlands, and who made the histories of those days that still are known. And tidings of these things they only learned long afterwards from their kinsfolk in Amand. But at the last the might of Valinor came up out of the west, and the challenge of the trumpets of Aonwe filled the sky, and Beleriand was ablaze with the glory of their arms, for the host of the Valar were arrayed in forms young and fair and terrible, and the mountains rang beneath their feet. The meeting of the hosts of the west and of the north is named the Great Battle and the War of Wrath. There was marshaled the whole power of the throne of Morgoth, and it had become great beyond count, so that Anfaugleth could not contain it, and all the north was aflame with war but it availed him not. The Balrogs were destroyed, save some few that fled and hid themselves in caverns inaccessible at the roots of the earth. And the uncounted legions of the orcs perished like straw in a great fire or were swept like shriveled leaves before a burning wind. Is that a powerful visual or what? Oh, yeah. Like straw in a fire (laughs) or leaves before a burning wind. Yeah. Oh, man. Uncounted legions. Yep. Gone. Yeah. I mean, this is this is like better than, you know, it's like the visual at the end of Peter Jackson's Return of the King. You know, when you've got all the fleeing, uh, the fleeing orcs and the earth just collapsing underneath them. This is right. This is better than that. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm I'm not knocking that movie. No, no. That's actually one of those cool moments. Yeah, exactly. This is, but this, this is amazing. The Balrogs destroyed. Destroyed, save some few. Yeah, boy, is that Hmm. foreboding. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder Hmm. wonder who that's going to be. Doran's Bane. We'll see. (laughs) Doran's Bane. We'll see one of them at least once. At least one. Uh, The uncounted legions perish like straw in a great fire. Man, just... Just you can just see them getting just wiped out, wiped out by this lightning yeah. fast by this this yeah. massive army of the Valar and the Vanyar, 
and a little bit of uh, of the Noldor and the Teller. Well, not Tellery, sorry. A little bit of the Noldor. Yeah, right. Exactly. The Tellery did not. Uh, yeah, they did not get take, out of their boats, they did they? Get, no, they did not step foot on Middle Earth, and I can't. I mean, they, them. you know, as you were just saying, you know, they didn't even want to. They didn't want to do this. No. Um, but but, they did uh, but for, at least uh, they agreed to. Uh, yeah. To, to, to sail the ships. Well, and they did that specifically because of their relationship. Because with, of Elwing. Uh, with Elwing, exactly. Yeah. So yep. unbelievable. I just, I love this. Um, and, and I also love this kind of this nod to why we don't have a lot of information on this. This is once again kind of a reminder of the context of the book. We've talked about that kind of the, oh, yeah. the, the, the meta of the story itself. Yeah, the, the idea that it's it's sort of, it's, it's, a history. it's an in-universe document, you know, right. it's something that was written by the elves themselves. Right, and, the and passed themselves. down through through men yeah. and, you know, right. eventually Bilbo writing it down, presumably. Right. But, um, it, you know, it's just an interesting observation about the nature of the book. That, that it was, that we, right, so it wasn't written by much. the Vanyar, it wasn't written by the, yeah. the Tellery of Alqualande, it wasn't right. written by the, the Valar, obviously. No. Yeah. And in fact, you so, know, yeah. I think we got a piece of that earlier, way back in, in either maybe it was the Valaquenta or or actually I think it was chapter one and how we don't you know, there's not a lot here. We don't we don't have a very clear history of this because nobody who could write this down was there. Right. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you know, it all had to be told to them later. Um so anyway, intriguing. But that's why we don't get much of the march itself. Um, which is which is terrible. I wish we knew, I wish we had some. Yeah, where man, did they, I want to know so where cool. they landed. You know, did they land yeah. probably near the mouths of Sirion? I would imagine, just because the Bay of Balar was probably the only place big enough to to you know have all those ships queue up. Yeah, um, you know, then march up uh, march up the valley of the Sirion and and you know right straight up to Anfagla. Mm-hmm. Um, man, my how cool. goodness, yeah, because yeah. you know they didn't go across the Helcarax. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> they don't need to. Mm-mm. They got a job to do. Yeah. Oh, they are coming. I mean, they are coming. Can you imagine more? What Morgoth is thinking right about now? Oh like, man, he's thinking I am in trouble. Oh, oh, Valar, Valar okay. are here. I'm sorry. Who did you say? What? <laughs> but 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 I'm king of the world. Yeah. <laughs> don't they know? Nope. I've named this unto myself forever. This unto myself, Lance. The last time we get to say that. I know. Uh, I'm so sad about that. That was one of my favorite little bits. I know. I know. Oh, so Man. but so he is. Uh, he is. You know, in very serious trouble. In fact, the text says that he quailed. Oh yes, <laughs> which is a did. great word. But oh, then yes. what happens? Oh, I've got to hear this. <laughs> but he loosed upon his foes the last desperate assault that he had prepared. And out of the pits of Angband there issued the winged dragons that had not before been seen. And so sudden and ruinous was the onset of that dreadful fleet that the host of the Valar was driven back. For the coming of the dragons was with great thunder and lightning and a tempest of fire. But Eärendil came, shining with white flame, and about Vingalot were gathered all the great birds of heaven, and Thorondor was their captain. Uh-huh. And there was battle in the air all the day and through a dark night of doubt. Before the rising of the sun, Eärendil slew Ancalagon the Black, the mightiest of the dragon host, and cast him from the sky. And he fell upon the towers of Thangorodrim, and they were broken in his ruin. Oh, what a line. I'll stop there so we can talk about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love I mean, I, once again, chills, Arendel coming in, save the day. Um, <laughs> but not easily. I mean, it took, you know, there was oh, a battle no. all day and through a dark night of doubt. Yeah. 
they didn't know yeah. whether they were going to be able to be victorious here. These, right. This was, yeah, this a, was really a really tough, tough fight. This was a these, tough battle. This was not just coming through and just, you know, slaying. This was Yeah, these were not perishing fight. like straw in a great fire. These, <laughs> right, these were exactly. tough, tough fights. Yeah. Uh, the, the dragon host, and these are winged dragons now. So going back mm-hmm. to that question out of Bartleman's bag, now we know why, yeah. you know, Smaug was Why there were no winged Gondolin. dragons at, at Gondolin, right. Uh, they, were all, they were all being saved for this particular battle. Yep. My goodness. And but, then just yeah. imagine the visual of Arendel's white ship flying and, oh. and Caligon the black. With the golden oars and the silver sails yes. and his black dragon. Well, yes, and the two of them fighting. And there there are some there are some pictures of it online. Mm. There's some art out there. Yeah, um, we should talk about but that. But I think we need to talk about that because I think that gives us what gives us kind of a a skewed view of Encolagon, doesn't it? Really it really does. There's there's a, a a graphic going out that's that's a, a well made graphic, but it's it, it's I think frankly not realistic uh, in in terms of trying to describe the size of Encolagon. Mm-hmm. Um, you you'll see these things where they've got like silhouettes of the various dragons of Middle Earth, you know, and you'll have little teeny tiny tiny Glaurung and and Skatha and maybe a slightly little bigger Smaug, and then you'll have this massive, you know. I don't know, planetoid-sized dragon in Caligon yeah. that like, would make King Kong look, you know, like ridiculously, like a lemur. <laughs> yeah, ridiculously huge. Like, yeah, I mean, absurdly yeah. huge. Yeah, and and they they get this from this notion of well, he fell upon the towers of these big mountains and they were broken. Mm-hmm. Well, that. that <laughs> well, we've talked about this. I mean, we talked about Thangaradrum when when Morgoth built it, right? Didn't we? And yeah. we talked about the fact that, you know, they're they're referred to as the peaks or the towers, um, but they're all they're also and they're big, they're <laughs> big, but they were piles of trash and slag, right. ash and, and slag. Junk. They they just couldn't have been. I mean, I, I see part of this is I I love Karen Wynn Fonstad's Atlas of Middle Earth, but there's something mm-hmm. that she draws a conclusion. She draws the conclusion in there that the peaks of Than Thangarodrum were. 30,000 feet high or 36,000 feet high or something basically That's higher right. than any terrestrial mountain. That. Yeah, I remember I, I reading that. I can't possibly land on that conclusion um, because they were, again, they were just made with the refuse from the, the tunnelings. So, yeah. And even if, I mean, even if you even if they were, that, even if these yeah. were 36,000 foot mountains, you Even have, if it's mythically possible for Morgoth to create something this big. Right. Even if that were the case. There's just because it says they were broken in his ruin doesn't mean the entire mountains were destroyed from top right. to bottom. Right. I think that that the, really is the sides of the mountain were broken in his ruin. I mean, we, Gandalf says the same thing about the uh, he smote the mountainside in his ruin, talking about the Balrog yeah, that, that he fights with. Yeah. Yeah. He breaks a part of the mountains off. OK. Yeah. That doesn't mean right. that the entire towers are destroyed. Or shattered um, and, and thrown down. Exactly. Here. Exactly. exactly. There's a yeah. great article that, frankly, I had been intending to read pieces from, but we're already, you know, I don't know, what are we, close to an hour and a half, and I want to make sure we get we to are, the yeah. end of this story. Uh, but we'll make sure we include a link to this in our, our show notes. There's a great article that uh, John Garth wrote back in uh, uh, January mm-hmm. of 2015 talking about this exact issue. Uh, and he really goes into a number of reasons why this, why we can't take this description and run with it literally. Um, and he goes through, there's at I least three that, different yeah. things. It's a really great article and it talks yeah. about some of the illustrations uh, that have been, that Tolkien used and how they were in a different art style and how you can't take scale uh, seriously in those images. Right. 
uh, talking about medieval art. Uh, the picture of Glorin right. sets forth the Sikh Turin is the one that I'm thinking of. So we'll provide right. the link for that. And it's interesting because yeah, definitely read that. that's such a key article. And yet, hey, conveniently enough, we're interviewing John Carth in our next episode. <laughs> so, yes, we are. So we will post that link uh, to our show notes. Please read that. Uh, as sort of a, a postscript to this article to this uh, episode uh, in dealing with the size of Ancalagon, but yeah, he really, was big. He no was big. doubt about it. He and he'd was be big bigger and than was, Smaug and bigger than Glaurung, and he was the biggest dragon we've yet seen, and the and biggest dragon big. we will see. Uh, but but, yeah. but don't yeah, he's not like a thousand times bigger than Smaug or whatever. Yeah. That, that he'd have his own gravity is. well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's, there's no physical way for him to fly. I. Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, seriously, he's big enough I mean, to crush three thirty-six thousand foot mountains. He's too big to fly. I mean, look, hey, I am the biggest Arendelle fan I know, but I mean, he's just a dude in a ship against seriously, a dragon that big with a bright you know? light. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. So yeah, yeah he's got to be he's got to be small enough for for somebody to contend with at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but interesting, interesting point. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the things Garth mentions, I, I definitely want people to read that. But one of the things Garth article. mentions is just it's just about, you know, the fact that these are myths and yeah. they are. you know, This I, is I think, poetic. This yes, is poetic what, speech in a. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Stylistic, I think, was Stylistic. one of the words he used in one yeah. place. That's like that's good a really good word. You know, it's 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 meant to to illustrate something poetically yeah. as opposed to being, um, you know, this is not. This is not intended as scientific fact. This isn't a, a, exactly. This isn't a a crisp, pure narrative. This is a right. legend. It's a retelling right. of a legend. So anyway, yeah. All right, I'm going to go ahead and, and finish that paragraph because oh, because justice. <laughs> then the sun rose, and the host of the Valar prevailed, and well nigh all the dragons were destroyed, and all the pits of Morgoth were broken and unroofed. And the might of the Valar descended into the deeps of the earth. There Morgoth stood at last at bay, and yet unvaliant. He fled into the deepest of his mines, and sued for peace and pardon. But his feet were hewn from under him, and he was hurled upon his face. Then he was bound with the chain Angainor, which he had worn aforetime, and his iron crown they beat into a collar for his neck, and his head was bowed upon his knees. And the two Silmarils, which remained to Morgoth, were taken from his crown, and they shone unsullied beneath the sky, and Aonwe took them and guarded them. Oh, I, yes. I, I think I think everyone needs to know that that's the passage that I bought those other passages with. Yes, yes. You paid a very <laughs> and, steep price. And I, and I gave it willingly. <laughs> Yay, with both hands. Yay, I with gave. both hands thou shalt give. <laughs> I hope uh, that is still. such a great passage. Yes, it is. It is a great passage. The, the, the cowardice of Morgoth, mm, the yes. visual of the entire, just the pits broken and unroofed, the entire top of of of, of all yeah. of Angband. I mean, sorry, of, of all of, um, yeah, of Angband. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. say a Timno for a moment. Yeah, like, just, wait a minute, just, wrong age. You just see him, you just see them ripping off the... Yeah. Chunks the, of know, land, the ground, big to, to reveal the these dungeons below. Yeah, it's oh. like, oh, it, it, it's almost like when you're a kid and you have an ant colony, you know, and yeah. you, you realize just how powerful you are in, in <laughs> relation yeah. to these ants. Kind of makes me think of that. So then he gets yeah. the chain Anginori around him again. So you know, yes, and we saw that chain. Yep. Wow, long time ago. Long um, time ago, way back when. 
Yeah. My goodness. Chapter, I don't know what, three, maybe? Uh, I don't know. Something. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because it was when the elves uh, were about to show up. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Oh, I've got oh, it written down right here. Page like, 51. Yeah. That's chapter page three, 51. the captivity of Melkor. Yeah. Um, and, and I love and they, they beat his, his crown, crown into a collar. That is brilliant. <laughs> I love awesome. that. That and is so awesome. Poetic justice. I can just see this visual of him, his head bowed upon his knees. You know, mm-hmm. he's just, he's beaten. Well, and remember how heavy the crown was. And oh, yeah. remember how the, the, just the weight of the crown on his head yep. was, you know, was weighing him down. I can't remember where we saw that. But... Uh, that was in the chapter with Luthien. I was talking about how much that thing weighed. Oh, oh no, I know what you're talking about. Um, I think, you yeah, know, it was, was there, it but was, it was also, yeah. It was, it was when was he first things. put the Silmarils in it. It was after his, That's uh, right. after he and Ungoliant, after their date ended poorly. Right. Um, that was, <laughs> yes. that was, yeah. So that would have been. That's right. Um, not of the darkening of Valinor because it was in the pickup of the next chapter. So it was chapter nine of the flight of the North. Right. Okay. Um, where we got that. And now, and now that heavy thing is around his neck. Oh, beautiful. Oh, so great. And no more Silmarils. Aeon White has Love it. And they shone unsullied beneath the sky. So, um, we won't read the next paragraph, but basically the entire realm is destroyed. Uh, slaves come forth, but the world has changed. Uh, yep. the sea is coming in in places, the rivers are changing or finding new paths but, and Sirion is gone. Yeah. I mean, the entire but, river Sirion is gone. Finally, it's not a spoiler when we talk about Beleriand yeah. going underwater. And yet I have to think this must be a slightly, at least a partial or not a partial, but not an immediate collapse because, you know, later we get that they build ships and they, you know, some people oh, that's leave. That's true, yeah. Well, you know, if the shoreline's not there, where are they building these <laughs> where things? Are they so building ships? I think this must be some yeah. sort of like, you know, slow descent. You know, this isn't quite like as uh, cataclysmic as what we'll see in a Calabath, for instance. Right, right. This is, yeah, the, I think you're probably right. This is this is slower. And of course, the yeah. Valar are there, so they should have right. some ability have some to, power. Right. to check the, the sinking. Yeah, there has but, to be, uh, because there's got to be time for a lot of this post-battle stuff to right. happen. Right. And and for anybody who's reading this for the first time, you know, this is this is what creates the shoreline of Middle Earth that you see in right. Lord of the Rings. That exactly. that map where where the Arid Luin, which was the eastern edge of Beleriand, is now the western edge of, of Middle Earth. And there's mm-hmm. just that little strip of land called Lindon, which is yep. uh, which is west of those mountains. It's all that's left of Beleriand. And this and, is and when that, that happens. Part of Osirian. Yep, that that's right. Yeah. Yep. So I think we um, determined that one of the one of the rivers became the Gulf of Loon there, didn't we? I can't remember which one. We don't, I yeah. think we figured out we, we couldn't really tell which one had yeah. become the okay. Gulf of Loon because there was no yeah. reference to where we would have had to have a it's reference of um, of at least maybe where the where the dwell where the dwarven kingdoms were, right? Uh, to to kind of gauge which river uh, had become the it probably was yeah. two or three of them that kind of merged. Could be, yeah, they just merged. So interesting. So I'm going to have you pick up uh, the next you know, paragraph and a half or so, uh, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Okay. Then Aonwe, as herald of the Elder King, summoned the elves of Beleriand to depart from Middle-earth. But Mithras and Maglor would not hearken, and they prepared, though now with weariness and loathing, to attempt in despair the fulfillment of their oath. For they would have given battle for the Silmarils where they withheld, even against the victorious host of Valinor, even though they stood alone against all the world. And they sent a message, therefore, to Aonwe, bidding him yield up now those jewels, which of old Feanor their father made, and Morgoth stole for him, from him. But Aonwe answered that the right to the work of their father, which the sons of Feanor formerly possessed, 
had now perished because of their many and merciless deeds, being blinded by their oath, and most of all because of their slaying of Dior and the assault upon the havens. Mm. The light of the Silmarils should go now into the west, whence it came in the beginning, and to Valinor must Mithros and Maglor return, and there abide the judgment of the Valar, by whose decree alone would Aonwe yield the jewels from his charge. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a no. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> <That's>, <I'm, laughs> we are disinclined to acquiesce to your request. <laughs> oh, you gotta do that with the with the right voice. We are I can't do a Jeffrey Rush to voice. Acquiesce to your request. <laughs> it's too late for a Jeffrey Rush voice, I'm sorry. But thank <laughs> They're more like guidelines. There you go. <laughs> you got it, you know. I miss that movie. Than actual rules. Well, there's yeah. a new one coming Yeah, I know, but it... it if I know, that, that, that none of them has been as good as the first Well, one. and the fourth one is just so bad, I can't even... I mean, really terrible bad. I don't think I made it through the fourth one. I don't, I ba- I'm not sure I made it through the third one. I barely one. did. I didn't walk out of... Um, of Pirates. Of Pirates, Pirates 4. 4. But that was the one where I think they were looking for the uh, the Fountain of Youth. Oh, it was just awful. Okay. I'm so sorry yeah, to no, say I that. But, I haven't even seen it. But yeah, I mean, you know, two was just almost as good as one. Three was not quite as good as two, and four was terrible. So if, if it yeah. continues that pattern, five will be absolutely ridiculously bad. But um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it'll be good. I, I hope so. We'll I see. certainly love the first one. The first one was a blast. Well, Legolas is back in this one, so. Legolas is back. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah no, I know. But I'm just like, yeah, Legolas. I know, yeah. I know. I just, yeah. You're right. That's all I, you know, that's all I can think of. <laughs> part of the ship, part of the crew. Um, yep. Anyway. So, <laughs> anyway. We digress. We digress. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, my I goodness that we digress. I with my bad um, Barbarossa, uh, not even impression, <laughs> just quote. Just quote, but that's good enough. Yeah, this is a definitely a big, big, big no. Um, yeah. But, but I love it that Aonwe doesn't just say, you're kidding me, right? I mean, he would totally be okay to say that. Uh, but he says basically, he, he, you did kinda, have this right, but you don't have it anymore. He comes at him like, yeah, he's, he puts a little lawyer on him. Like, <laughs> he does. He, he lawyers up for sure. Well, you formally um, possessed that right. Yes, but it, but it let's perished. go through the list of things that have taken yeah. that away from you. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, and what's going to happen. So, And I love this. Look, you want the, you want the, the Silmarils? Come on back to Valinor. <laughs> because maybe maybe the Valar will give them to you, but I, maybe they're gonna have you to. You never tell, know. They're gonna have to tell me. Anything could happen. Oh man. Uh, yeah. So yeah, they. Um, I love that argument. Now we again we have to skip some because otherwise this will be a four hour episode and we don't want that. I know some of you do. You're sick people. Get help. Um, no, we love you. We do. We, we do really love do. you. We love every one of you. Uh, that was sarcasm. Yeah. Just so we you can't. Know. We can't make every one of these things three hours. No, we no. can't. We really can't. Um, so they they have this argument between them. Maglor wants to agree. He, look, I'm all for that. Let's just. The oath says we can bide our time. Let's go back to Valinor. Yeah. Maybe we'll get the stone, the the Cimmerils back. My other's like, look, if we go back. We can't get – what's going to happen to us if we try to fight the Valar in Valinor? Duh. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, because because Mithras is just he's, – he's just taking it as a given that, well, look, the oath is still there. We have to – We have we to have do to this. We have to trying to do it. You know, oath-bound to keep trying yeah. to get these. Yeah. But Magler's like, no, 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 no. Look, if they won't let us fulfill our oath, isn't it void? I mean, he's trying to get all lawyery yeah. on us now, right? Oh, oh he's looking for a way he's out. He's got to find one, a loophole, you know? Yeah. But but Mithras makes the very good point. Look, we called the everlasting darkness upon us. So 
we got to do this. Um, yeah. And you, you see know, here, Mithras says we swore to Iluvatar in our – by Iluvatar we swore in our madness. Boy, that's a good catch, isn't it? Both, both of them know that this is This just is madness. This is stupid. stupid. This, is, this is insane at this point. Thanks but, a lot, Dad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. And Mithras really looking for a way out, but Mithras uh, – Doesn't think there is one. Yeah. Doesn't think there is one. Maybe it's just despair at this point for him. He's just – Yeah. I mean, but, I think they know they'll die if they do it. I mean, yeah. That's, that's what he's imagining. But then again, that takes you back to Maglor, who says, well, then let's just break the oath, because at least that way we'll do less damage. Right, right. Either way, we're hosed. But if we yeah, don't take but, them, then at least we're going to do less let's evil. It, let's, it not, let's at least not take anybody else down with us at this point. Seriously, we've, we've already killed, killed enough. Some. Can we stop killing? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the answer is no. The answer to that is no. <laughs> and I'm going to read the next couple of paragraphs here, actually the next three paragraphs. Yet he yielded at last to the will of Mithras. And they took counsel together how they should lay hands on the Silmarils. And they disguised themselves and came in the night to the camp of Aonwe and crept into the place where the Silmarils were guarded. And they slew the guards and laid hands on the jewels. Then all the camp was raised against them and they prepared to die, defending themselves unto the last. But Aonwe would not permit the slaying of the sons of Feanor and departing unfought, they fled far away. Each of them took to himself a Silmaril, for they said, Since one is lost to us, and but two remain, and we too alone of our brothers, so is it plain that fate would have us share the heirlooms of our father. But the jewel burned the hand of Mithros in pain unbearable, and he perceived that it was as Aonwe had said, and that his right thereto had become void, and that the oath was vain. And being in anguish and despair, he cast himself into a gaping chasm filled with fire, and so ended. And the Silmaril that he bore was taken into the bosom of the earth. And it is told of Maglor that he could not endure the pain with which the Silmaril tormented him, and he cast it at last into the sea, and thereafter he wandered ever upon the shores, singing in pain and regret beside the waves. For Maglor was mighty among the singers of old, named only after Dairon of Doriath. But he came never back among the people of the elves. And thus it came to pass that the Silmarils found their long homes, one in the airs of heaven, and one in the fires of the heart of the world, and one in the deep waters. <laughs> Just... Wow. 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 It's amazing. It's... There, I, I feel like we, I mean, that, that passage, it, it, it's pretty on the surface what's happening there. Yeah. Uh, maybe we yeah. don't have to, but I think we need to react to a couple of things in here. We do. Um, first of all, can we go back to them killing the guards? Yeah. Isn't this a fourth kinsling? Yeah. Because, it's just, they only killed those few guards. I mean, this wasn't like they yeah. wiped out an entire, um, you know, true. community. Uh, okay. Yeah. This is more fair. like, you know, murder. Okay. Just a little murder. Yeah. Just no, you're, you're right. Murder. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, these are elves. Yeah. Know, like, that's the thing. So, well, yeah. presumably, uh, I, I mean, mean they, I, I doubt they're my <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't yeah, think you can slay them. Can't imagine they could slay my No. And you know, you um, almost wonder who were the guards. Were these some of the Noldor or were these I Vanyar? Wonder. Probably Vanyar. I don't Probably Vanyar. I can't imagine they would trust the Noldor anywhere near. <laughs> <I don't>... <laughs> hey, Fox, could you guard no. the hens? <laughs> no. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so, wow. And, and they're that... thinking, well, there's two of us and there's two gems. Right. So, And I love Aonwe's sense of justice. 
Yeah. He knows better. Oh. You oh, don't yeah. have to kill these guys. Trust me. Yeah. This is a fate worse than death. Yeah. Uh, yep, plus, of course, true. fate, period. I mean, I, I think there's there's something to be said here of, of Aonwe, even if he not even if he didn't know that he was supposed to let them go specifically, that is mm-hmm. to say if he didn't know why, I think there was something behind his deciding not to fight them for it. Maybe just some some echo of the music in him that was exactly. kind of telling him, yeah. I shouldn't, I, I can't, yeah. we can't intervene. We I mean, I doubt Manway told him, hey, by the way, <laughs> I mean, it's possible. <laughs> just in case the sons of Feanor, you know, yeah. Right, right. But it is, yeah. So, so they both, of course, experience this great pain. And, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about this way back when we learned about the Silmarils and their hallowing. The uh, unclean this, hands. Exactly. Yep. This is an indication that they have unclean hands and, uh, or, and or an evil will. Uh, so their right to these. And so their right is void. Is gone. And and the oath is vain. I I, I yeah, love that. You I know. do too. <laughs> as if as if we didn't know how vain the oath was all along. But you not, know, void. It's, uh, not void. Not but void. Not void. Right. Exactly. Right. The right is yeah. void, not the oath. And that's right. That language isn't an accident. But you're right. This this oath has been in vain from the minute it was taken. Uh, mm-hmm. The minute it was made, it was it was in vain, because you you can't you just can't possibly do this thing. Like they said to, to Fanor, even if Eru had made you three times as powerful as you are, you could not do this thing. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, so, so he, yeah, Mithros throws himself into a, a, a chasm of fire. Uh, mm-hmm. And notice, though, anguish and despair. Finally, there's yeah. the despair. You know, we've talked about hope yeah. and despair before. There is no hope anymore for him. Yeah. Um, none. And so, Well, this is the only no thing choice. he's been living for. Yeah. You know? And it's, you know, he doesn't even have that anymore. No. What else do you do? He can't possess the one thing that he has been dreaming to possess. That he's killed so many for. Yeah. um, Despite being sick with this oath, he's continued. And and now he realizes, oh, yeah, my right really is void. My goodness. So he throws himself into that fire. That Mm -hmm. silver goes to the bosom of the earth. Oh, pardon me. Yeah. (sighs) So sorry. My goodness. The Maglor. (laughs) Yeah, Maglor. I love but I love Maglor. Yeah, um, Maglor doesn't kill himself. He just no. gets rid of the Silmaril. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah. he wanders the shores singing never to come back. Singing he, in pain and regret. And I, right. I like to think he's still out there somewhere. Well, you know, he Fated. writes. Yeah, he writes depressing songs. Uh, but, you know, yeah. he never hits number one because of Diron of Doriath. <laughs> he's sort of. Right, you know. right, exactly. <laughs> Di- yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. maybe. maybe Maybe Maglo is just a little too depressing to go mainstream, you know. He's, <laughs> He's really goth. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's sad. So I mean, cool. yeah, it wouldn't it be interesting to think of Maglor still being out there? Yeah. You know? I've had my theories about what popular artist he is today. I'm Elvis, Elvis Presley? No, I never, I never went that way. I, I always kind of. Well, you know, because he's mysterious and people still see yeah. him at Walmarts across the country. Yeah, and we swear he's still alive. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I don't know. I always kind of thought like maybe Brian Wilson or something. Oh, there you go. West Coaster. You yeah. A lot, lot of brothers. Beach. Yeah. A lot of brothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I like that idea. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. He's but, mighty uh, among the singers of old. Yeah. Never came back. Yeah. So now and we then, get the and then wrap him, up. Him, yeah. him throwing the him throwing the Silmaril though is I know. great. Uh, there's there's that great. Um, it's the cover of one of the editions of the Silmaril. Yes. Silmaril. Is it um, Ted Naismith? I believe it is. He did it of of it's, him throwing it into the. You can see yeah. it. His arms extended and the Silmaril is out in the, uh, you know, out out over the waves. Yeah. Is yes, that the one the image I'm, you're thinking of? Yeah. That's the one I'm thinking of, and I, I think that's Naismith. We'll have to see I if need... we can find that that image and put it in our show notes. 
we'll yeah, I'll, make a note. I'll or see something. if I can. I'll see if I can find that while you're. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's him. I can, I've, I've got it up on my screen right okay. now. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. Isn't that a great image? I mean, I can see it in my head, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not pulling it up right now, but. Yeah. Um, I, I love that now we get the destination for all three of the Silmarils mm-hmm. uh, that you get. You know, now you get one in the skies, one in the earth and one in the waters. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But that brings us to a real brief conversation. About it, and, I, and I say I want it to be brief because we are pushing pretty close to two hours now. Yeah, um, yep. And that is this question. And we see this every once in a while on uh, the, the, the Internet's. Um, the idea that the mm-hmm. Arkenstone is, in fact, a Silmaril, that it's the Silmaril that Mithros uh, you know, took with him when he jumped took into, into the chasm took of fire. Took into the, the bosom of the fire, yeah. Right. Um, you know, I yeah. you did a little bit of research in uh, the history of The Hobbit on this. I know we're, we're not yeah. from John Ratliff. Do you want to tell us a little bit, kind of where, where did he land on yeah, this? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, this is something that I've, I've seen, we, we've seen it a lot, and I've always mm-hmm. just sort of yeah. discounted it out of hand. You know, uh, after reading uh, Ratliff's uh, bit on it, he's actually got about seven pages on it in the history mm-hmm. of The Hobbit. Um, and he he actually is a little bit more open to the idea that maybe there was something there at one point. Okay. Um, or maybe that Tolkien had con- Tolkien had intended for there to be some sort of connection, but that's connection doesn't that's necessarily likely, mean it's right? the same jewel. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, not- and, yeah, not that it's actually it, but that, you know, Tolkien wanted to draw a connection. Okay. Um, and but I think where Ratliff lands on all this is that it's ultimately ambiguous. He actually says at one point in this seven page essay, the answer is both yes and no. Don't uh, ask him or the elves, apparently. <laughs> right, exactly. Go not to the Ratliff for counsel. Um, <laughs> but what it really gets down to is this. And I will read just a few lines of this. Sure. Um, no, I think this is, is that. Helpful. Yeah, because there is a, a little bit of an etymological connection here. So. Right. Um, the word Arkenstone comes from this old English word, Erkenstan, um, which actually means something like holy jewel or holy stone. Right. And, um, and so here's what, here's what, Tolkien, here's what Ratliff says. By avoiding the use of the word Silmaril and instead using the ingenious and agreeable synonym Arkenstone uh, or Erkenstan, Tolkien got to draw on his rich homebrew mythology, which by the early 1930s had developed a remarkable depth and sophistication without worrying what the effect of this new story would be on that mythology. Okay. Uh, and, and if I could put that in my own words, um, what I would say is that, uh, yes, there is a connection there. There is even an etymological connection there that right. I don't think we have time to go into. But ultimately, what, what it boils down to is that Tolkien used his own mythology as a source of inspiration. Right. That makes <laughs> you know, sense. Just as you could say that, you know, Turin was inspired by Kullervo without actually being Kullervo, the Arkenstone was inspired by the Silmarils without actually being a Silmaril. Yeah. That, That's that, where I'm landing on this. That makes sense. And, and, that, and that makes sense because the published texts make it – and, you know, we've talked about this before that when there's an issue, when there's possible mm-hmm. conflict, we really have to go with the published text. We can't – Absolutely. If, if, yeah. if something in Book of Lost Tales Volume 2 – you know, super uh, contradict something in Lord of the Rings. We've, we've got to go with what's in Lord of the Rings. That's yes. the published text. So yes. um, that's why those other things aren't published because they, he could never reconcile them. He, he was not, or at least not able to in his lifetime. Um, right. And the published text makes it abundantly clear that they cannot possibly be the same stone. The Silmarillion says that the world is going to, we're going to get to this line a little bit. So spoiler, uh, the world's going to have to be broken and remade for the Silmarils mm-hmm. to be recovered. Right. Uh, and the Hobbit, in, as they describe the Arkenstone, it says that there could not be two such gems, even in so marvelous a horde, even in all the world, 
Okay, well, there so are... I guess there can't be there three. There can't be three so, of them. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, of course, I think the biggest and most obvious one is the fact that in The Hobbit, it says that the Ark and Stone was cut and fashioned by the dwarves. Yes. That That's alone absolutely yeah. eliminates this. Um, you know, we know that the... the um, uh, no violence could mar or break the Silmarils. That's straight out of Chapter 7. Um, you, yep. There is no way that anybody could have cut or fashioned these stones. Second, they, they would have had to touch them in order to cut yeah. and fashion them. Right. And, and they, they are not of immortal... They're not yeah. any of those... They, they are mortal flesh. They have less right to it than Magalor and Mithras at right, this point. Right, really. right. They are mortal flesh, and so they mm-hmm. could not they could not touch it but be scorched and withered uh, right. after those stones have been hallowed. So that's yeah. that's really why we have to land there and say there's really just and, no way at all. Yeah, and um, even the you know the beauty of these three long homes that they found, you know, mm-hmm. heaven and earth and water, you know, right. where the Silmarils have all landed. To have one of um, those come back? To have one of them suddenly come up just because, you know, no. Thorin and Bilbo came back to the Lonely Mountain or, or because the dwarves found it in the first place. It and just boy, doesn't... talk about a long way for that stone to go. There's just no way. Yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. There's just no practical well, way. Yeah. And sometimes, oh, well, maybe that, that you know, that Tectonic was the volcanic chasm at the bottom from... of, of Erebor or something. But that's a long way for Mithros to have run in unbearable pain. A long way from, from a, a part of yeah. Valerian that's, you know, being destroyed. And, and remember what that what that stone did to Karkaroth, you know, just yeah. getting from... Angban to, to Doriath. Right. You know, burned him from the inside out. I mean, there's no way Mithras could have made it that far. And no, no. Yeah. I mean, so yes, similarities, and I think, what, that are Bilbo intentional. touches it and, uh, right. uh um, what is it? he hands it to, he hands it to this. Bard, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and both of those are mortal flesh. Yeah. So no, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, anyway. it can't be based on the finished texts. And that's what we have to go with. That it is it what we cannot have to go be. With. Uh, yes, uh, read Ratliff. I will acknowledge that there is a connection. There, there are. But it's a, an etymologi- it's etymological an et- connection. It's a it's connection etymologi- in terms of inspiration and use right. of words. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Tolkien certainly intended for there to be a very subtle, and I mean very subtle, connection between the two. Mm-hmm. A connection. Yeah, I mean, as it- the reason why we have never seen this. Uh, you know, the, the reason why we've always dismissed out of hand the arguments on the Internet is because none of them have ever made out this point. I've never seen right. anybody on Facebook use Eorknenstan right. <laughs> in any of right. these discussions ever, not no. once. No. Um, so, yeah, I. anyway, fun stuff. I, it would have been nice if you had thought it was and I thought it wasn't because I know our, our, our listeners I know. We need to argue want more, us to disagree. But... <laughs> can you please pick something? Where, I know. Can you pick something to be wrong on, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> all right well if you can't do that can I, I, you... I will i will be wrong on uh this podcast would be better if we disagreed more there there you go <laughs> uh if you can't do that can you at least read the next two paragraphs for us i suppose i can do that yeah all right sounds good in those days there was a great building of ships upon the shores of the western sea and thence in many a fleet the eldar set sail into the west and came never back to the lands of weeping and of war and the Vanyar returned beneath their white banners and were born in triumph to Valinor. But their joy and victory was diminished, for they returned without the Silmarils from Morgoth's crown. Yep. And they knew that those jewels could not be found or brought together again unless the world be broken and remade. And when they came into the west, the elves of Beleriand dwelt upon Talaresia, the lonely isle that looks both west and east, whence they might come even to Valinor. 
They were admitted again to the love of Manwe and the pardon of the Valar, and the Teleri forgave their ancient grief, and the curse was laid to rest. I love that. Mm, the the yeah. forgiveness of the Teleri. Yeah. To, to me, that speaks even more than the pardon of the Valar. I, I just, there's something yeah, I think so. yeah. really noble about that. Um, I mean, just, you know, a few pages ago, they were so, they were still so ticked that they weren't going to set foot on Middle Earth to help them. Yeah, right. And now they forgive them. I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. Yeah. But sad that, you know, yeah. even though that this is a victory, it yeah. is a diminished It's very diminished without those gems. Without those gems. And because, again, the misdeeds of the Feanorians at the I end. Know. I mean, they would have at least had two of them. Yeah. yeah. Even at the end, they, they prevent the host of the West from having a true victory. It's yeah. just sad. It really is sad. I mean, there's not a whole lot more to be said. It's, um, yeah. yeah. But... It's it's important stuff, and we needed to read that. Obviously, the the world broken and remade is important. Uh, yeah, and then the fact that okay, they're they're back, uh, and and everything's forgiven, and I yeah. think that everything can be forgiven because the seven sons of Feanor are dead. Well, right. Okay, Magler's not dead, but he's not. He didn't come back. So right. And the Silmarils um, are you know they're yeah they're, they're not they're a fact unachievable anymore. now. We can't yeah. we can't. Right. It's not even something we can plan. You know, try to get them back. Right. Um. We're not going to read the next paragraph, but we are going to kind of sum up again uh, that not everybody left. As we know, a few people stayed. Uh, mm-hmm. Círdan, uh, Celeborn, and Galadriel. Uh, they are the only – Galadriel is the only one of the Noldor who went mm-hmm. into exile to stay there. Um, well, alone remained the, one, the, the, only who one, led the, the one who led the Noldor. The one who led the Noldor, yeah. My mistake. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's – Because as we know, I mean, yeah, there are – there, there are, of course, going to uh, be others, but yeah. of the leaders, she is the only one. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, there have to be others because they're not, like, living by themselves in caves. They right, have right, right. communities with them. Right, right. Um, well, we get things like, you know, Gildor and Glorian in, yeah, uh, yeah. in, in Fellowship, you know, yeah. of the House of Finrod. So Definitely he must have been around for a while. Right. Yeah. And then you've got Gil-Galad, who remains, and then Elrond, who chose, you know, this is where we get their choice, right? We talked earlier about... Mm-hmm. Uh, the choice of Eärendil and Elwing, and how he deferred to Elwing, and when she chose to be counted among elven kind, he did too. Mm-hmm. Their sons, however, choose uh, different. Elrond they each have their own to, choice. Yeah, yeah. Each of them has their own, as as is allowed. You know that was something that Manway made very specific. Mm-hmm. So Elrond chooses to be numbered among the Eldar, but Elros chooses to be with men. Um, I and, wish I knew more about this. I, I mean, I too. wish I knew more about the choices they made. Yeah, and you know? why? Why did they make those choices? You know? Yeah. Uh, what was what was their thought process? Why, if they're brothers and close, why would they choose to be to be parted? Right, right. Um, and yet, maybe, you know, it's a good thing they or maybe did. El, or maybe El Ross was just like, okay, he's going to be an elf. I'm going to leave. That's I'm, right. I, I I can't stand that guy. Yeah, I was going to pick elf, but man, forget yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I cannot live another day with Elrond. I'm tired of living under his shadow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's always um, scowling. Seriously, he's always. It's holding, always scowling and holding councils and seriously, reading moon runes. What's wrong with he that? He keeps guy? talking about the Matrix. I don't understand. <laughs> What's the Matrix? <laughs> okay, uh, mixing properties is supposed to be my thing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome great. to the Matrix, Frodo Baggins. Oh, um, okay, Mr. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, I do want to touch on their bloodlines because, you know, the text makes it real clear that from these two brothers 
has come this ennoblement of men, right? The the blood of the firstborn and the strain. I love this. The strain of the spirits divine that were before Arda. Yes. So, you know, we talked before about their their bloodline and how each of these is, uh, let me get those numbers again. I have to get, uh, get back to that part. But they're each basically two-thirds elf, uh, 31% man and 3% Maiar. And that's that's big. That's significant. Yeah. Um, Elrond's descendants are... Okay, we know about Elros. Well, actually, we know about Elrond, too. <laughs> I want to cover each real briefly. Yeah. Um, Elros, as we know, and we'll see in the next chapter, becomes the first king of Numenor. Uh, right. He ends up reigning for over 400 years. Uh, so he has a very, very long life. Wow, is it that long? That's, yeah. That is a long time. 410 years, I think it is. Wow. Um, we'll get to that you know, very early in, um, in our next... Well, not our next episode, because our next episode is... Uh, the interview with John Garth, but our right, next right. Uh, story episode. Right. But Elrond's descendants, and we don't get this in the films. If most of your experience of Lord of the Rings is the films, you won't remember this. But, um, you know, we all know about his daughter, Arwen, of course. She ends up marrying Aragorn. But his mm-hmm. twin sons, Eladan and Elrohir, are are, right. are very close to the Rangers of the North. They're often far afield with the Rangers of the North. They come with mm-hmm. Halbarad and 30 rangers to join Aragorn right. before they Let enter they the paths of the, the path dead. Of the dead. That's right. They bring yeah. one of them actually has the gift from Arwen that is the the banner that Aragorn That's ends up right. unfurling on right. the boats that they take. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, they're really tied in. Mm-hmm. And those bloodlines, they end up coming back together, of course, in Aragorn and Arwen. You know, as we know, Arwen is the daughter of Elrond. Aragorn is descended from Elros by, you know, what, like 40 or 50 generations. But um, that's the I difference. Six, between I think it's 60 else. something. Yeah, I think it's it a is. lot. It's yeah. a lot. And yeah. it's not direct, direct. I mean, it's not male to male to male. I think he's, there's a, I think he's descended yeah. from a daughter in a couple of points. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, we'll get into that when we get into Akalabeth and how oh, yes, the, yeah. uh, the king and queenship, you know, gets descended. But yeah, very important to note that, that this is how this whole line that we've been mm-hmm. dealing with for this whole time of, of Tuor and Idril and of Baron and Luthien and then of their kids. Uh, and then finally, Eärendil marrying Elwing. And now you've got Elrond and Elros. That's what this is all about was yeah. ennobling. This is the ennobling, men. the ennobling we've talked about several times now. Yeah. And, and bringing in that strain of Maiar uh, mm-hmm. into uh, into Elrond and into Elros, yep. especially into Elros, because, of course, Elrond yep. being counted among the elves. So just and that's who, amazing And stuff. that's who we're going to see, you know, kind of the movers and shakers mm-hmm. of the, the rest of the legendarium, really. But Absolutely. And we can't wait mm-hmm. to get to that. But yep. for now, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this chapter. I'm going to go ahead and finish it off, and then we'll uh, we'll discuss. My goodness, we're already <laughs> over two hours. I'm so sorry. Thank yep. you for your patience. But um, let me go ahead and pick up this last little bit. But Morgoth himself, the Valar, thrust through the door of night beyond the walls of the world into the timeless void. And a guard is set forever on those walls, and Eärendil keeps watch upon the ramparts of the sky. Yet the lies that Melkor, the mighty and accursed, Morgoth Bauglir, the power of terror and of hate, sowed in the hearts of elves and men, are a seed that does not die and cannot be destroyed and ever and anon it sprouts anew and will bear dark fruit even unto the latest days. Here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, that was of old the fate of Arda marred. And if any change shall come and the marring be amended, Manwe and Varda may know, but they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dooms of Mandos.
<sighs> wow. It, it's, it, it is a, it's a sad ending. I mean, it's a sad ending with, uh, with some hope, you know, yeah. we've got the star of hope in the sky. Exactly. There's this um, beautiful moment, you know, of the, of, of the star. And yet mm-hmm. we're reminded that even though Melkor is defeated, the hate that he has sown, the lies that he has sown, that will not ever die. Yeah. And cannot be destroyed. It'll, it'll, this is now a permanently fallen world. Yeah. 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 It, th- it, this bit reminds me of um, Gandalf's words at the last debate in Return of the King, oh, where they're talking yeah. about what will happen after they overthrow Sauron. Um, and, oh, you know, that's he says, right. I remember this. Yeah, he says, other evils there are that may come, for Sauron is himself but a servant or emissary. Yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. Boy, I love that. What a beautiful do, metaphor I do that love is. that. Uprooting I, I do love the evil that. in the fields that we know, so those yeah. who live may have clean earth to till what weather they'll have isn't ours yeah. to rule. Yeah. I mean, it, it echoes a little bit with, you know, one of those old, all-time favorite Gandalf quotes, you know, all we have to decide is what to do with yeah. the time that, that is You're given right. us. You're right. That really um, is that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, except here but he's saying also, it's not just that it's ours to decide what to do. It's that ours is to do the right thing. To do the right thing for now. For to now. To this evil that we can. And it, it will not be forever. There will no. always be this evil in the world. And, and it is because of this, because of Morgoth. You know, that's something um, we're going to get into when we get to the Lord of the Rings and maybe even to the Hobbit. But this reminder that we see throughout Tolkien that victories are temporary. Mm-hmm. Every victory is temporary. Every victory is temporary. That's a Yeah. Really I think that's point. something that the films, I mean, you know, you and we'll talk more about the films in a few episodes and you, mm-hmm. you know that I, I really did enjoy the first three. Um, mm-hmm. But it is something that the films didn't capture that they kind of no, lost they, yeah. that and made it seem like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It just, it felt like, well, it, okay, it's, we're it, done. It, it's yeah, all happy like now. Evil, right. Exactly. It's, it's the happy ending and it's, you know, but it's the cliched happy ending, not the catastrophe right. and not the understanding. Right. That's true. That, you know, in, in all of this, these victories are temporary because of what we just read in that very last chapter. That's mm-hmm. the fate of Arda Mard. Yep. Arda is, is Mard. Arda is not as it was intended to be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you talked about those lines being, you know, the, 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 the reminded you of those lines. I actually was thinking of that line way back in Chapter 7. Um, and this is back when Melkor was trying to sow discord. <laughs> Track number one oh, on his yeah. greatest hits right. album. Yes, yep. yep. Um, amongst the uh, amongst the elves, and the text mm-hmm. says that long was Melkor at work, and slow at first, and barren was his labor. But he that sows lies, in the end, shall not lack of a harvest, and soon he may rest from toil indeed, while others reap and sow in his stead. Hmm. Lies will come. Lie, I mean, yeah. you know, they will bear fruit. But in this case, as yeah. we see, as lies always will, it's dark fruit. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and you know, you've got the image of the, the, the hate, the, the power of terror and hate sowed in the hearts of elves and men. Yeah, this this image of the seed and, and uh, being sowed. Yeah, it's yeah, the lies a very, very clear sowed. parallel. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. It's, it's sad, you know, but there is a, a tinge of hope at the end that, you know, possibly, just possibly there's going to be change that comes. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, I don't know, at some point we may talk about, 
Oh, well, goodness, I'm, am I yawning again? <laughs> it's late. You're, you're boring um, me, Sean. You're boring. I know, I know. And I'm I'm just I'm on I'm on Arendel adrenaline right now. <laughs> Arendelin. Oh um, wow, that's bad. Thank you. That's horrible. I'm sorry. That's terrible. Um, but yeah, but you know, there is that hope and, yeah. and I and I love yeah. that. That's the, all this horrible stuff has happened. But yeah. you know, We've gotten something that we could not have expected, which is the star of hope in the sky that will continue to shine. Absolutely. Um, and yes, I'm taking it right back to Arendelle because, you know, it's well, it needs to. That, yeah. that star is going to continue to shine in the sky. And it's, you know, even today we can look up in the sky and we can look at the evening star, the morning star. And, you know, and, and frankly, that's what I do when I look up at the evening star. I think of this story and I yeah. think of hope. It's hard not to. Um, and that's a beautiful thing to me. Man, it really is. Wow. So, I, but I guess... Yeah. This is it. I mean, here ends the Silmarillion, the Quintus Silmarillion, we should say. Uh, And uh, it only took us 15 months. That's about right. We we started (laughs) the Quinta with with episode eight. You know, it took us a while to get there. Um, Wow. And that released on April 10th last year. I was looking this up. This is episode 43, which releases on June 4th. So, yeah, it's 15 months, a little shy. Uh, okay. and, and it's 31 episodes, not counting our not because I don't want to count our specials or our interviews. Sure, yeah. Counting only the chapters of the Quint of the Quintus Silmarillion, we've done 31 episodes over 15 months, and we have spent over 55 hours walking you through the Silmarillion. Plus another two and a half. This one's gonna. End no, I, I I assume this is. Did be you include two. this one? I All right, included good, this good is two, so maybe it's closer to 56 now. Good for you. And and we hope you have enjoyed it. And the good news is we're not we're not done with the book. We're not no. even done with the Quinta yet, because I think, you know, I mean, I just want to say briefly, I mean, uh, I, I feel like I need to explain my obsession with Arendelle. <laughs> I think it's just <laughs> um, in a way you can see the entire Quinta as just the origin story for this star of hope. Yeah. Um, and that is it's a bit of an oversimplification. But I mean. I don't think it's really inaccurate when you look at from the, the entry of the Ainur into Arda, mm-hmm. the creation of the trees, the creation of the Silmarils, um, the ennoblement of men through all these marriages we've talked about, leading right. to Arendelle and Elwing and the journey. And as you said earlier, even something as sad and pointless as Turin's story tells us part of that, tells us how the yeah. Nauglimir came to think all. And, and that started that chain reaction that, yeah. that resulted in the Silmaril coming into Elwing's hands. You know, you're right. Folks, Sean's right. He's not just being <laughs> Arendelle-centric. For once, for <laughs> once. And and I really, you know, I, I always think of Arendelle as, as like a nexus point for the mythology. Hmm. Um, Good the, point. The, the first age is, you can almost see it as like an hourglass-shaped diagram. <laughs> the first age leads up to his story. And right. then... His story, as you discussed with Elrond and Elros, sets up the major events of the Second Age. And then Absolutely. his descendants are the major players in the Third. And, you know. Yeah, um, you know that. No, you, this, that's not a spoiler. You, you, you guys no. know this by now. You know what's going You're to happen. You're not listening with to this. Elrond. It, it, and, yeah. 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 Elrond and, and Aragorn and things like that. This, this all starts here. Yep. Yeah, it really does. Um, but, you know, let's look back at how Arendil's story closes out the First Age. You know, we talked about this a moment ago. He becomes... Gil Estel, the star of high hope, that mm-hmm. hope rises from the, the destruction of Beleriand by Morgoth, this corruption of this beautiful land. Arendelle's story is this story of hope. You know, we've talked about this coming from from horror of, well, let's just be honest. It's the sudden happy ending that could not have been counted on. It is the U catastrophe. We've avoided that word because I think we wanted to include that here in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. This is that thing that, that 
could only have happened because it was part of the plan. You could never have counted on it to happen, and you can't count on it to happen again. It's the mm-hmm. catastrophe. As much evil as there is in this world that Morgoth has marred, uh, and there is a lot, hope still rises. That's a that's profound. Yes, not just absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's 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 theologically profound. It's profound even just for the sake of kind of a pure uh, human optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, that really makes me come back to the very beginning. That's why you and I wanted to start this whole podcast with On Fairy Stories. On Fairy Stories, yeah. Because this concept, this idea of eucatastrophe, it's so central to Tolkien's works that an understanding of what it is and the role that it plays in fantasy, at least, again, in Tolkien's view, is absolutely crucial. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. And um, on on that subject of eucatastrophe, I think— um, this reminds me of something that one of our listeners um, sent us recently. Um, Tom Hillman, who's one of mm-hmm. our listeners, who's uh, yeah. we, we've heard from quite a few times. Um, <laughs> the brilliant Balrog essay. Yes, the brilliant Balrog essay, and he's been uh, really, uh, really vocal participant in a lot of our social media uh, stuff. But you know, he he has a blog, and and he recently uh, wrote a really great essay about this on his blog. Um, it's called uh, "From Terrible Beauty to Beacon of Hope: The Silmarils from Feanor to Eärendil." Oh yeah, I read that. Oh, it's so good. I it mean, is it, really and it just, good. yeah. I mean, he basically has broken down how Arendel's story is a kind of redemption uh, for the Silmarils themselves. And re- redemption is my word. It's not the word he, you know, he he says it. I think much more eloquently than that. But, um, but just kind of how Arendel's story sort of, um, you know, is is kind of a, a freedom for the Silmarils themselves. Yeah. You know, kind of like yeah. what we talked about with um, with Maglor's statement. You know. Just seeing a Silmaril in the sky, um, it, it's a, all this uh, the greedy possessiveness that's wrought so much harm in the world, you know, right. and they're now free from it's it. They're now out of reach. Now. Yeah, they're out exactly. of reach. And they're out of harm's way. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's such a great insight by Tom, and and I would recommend that uh, everyone listening should go and check that out at alasnotme.blogspot.com. And we'll put that which link is Tom's blog, and I'll put that link up on our show notes. Yeah, yep. and um, yeah, please do do go check that out because it really does kind of help you see. How the Silmarils are a microcosm of, you know, this larger eucatastrophe. Absolutely. And I guess, um, you know, we're getting kind of close to the end here. I just I really wanted to just kind of close this out with uh, another uh, listener comment. And this one comes to us from uh, Stefan in the Netherlands. We actually got this comment from Stefan back after our Tolkien Reading Day episode. Um, Mm -hmm. If you remember, Alan, we talked about Bilbo's poem about Eärendil, and we talked about that that word flamifer at the end. Yeah, we even Um, talked about that again today, huh, when we were talking about Yeah, that's right, we did. Wow, it's it's, it's been a long long (laughs) recording recording. Um, But, uh, you know, we talked about the fact that maybe Tolkien coined that word flamifer because – the original Latin name for the morning star, Lucifer, is a word that has very <laughs> negative a, connotations yeah. um, for anybody with any knowledge of, of Christian tradition. And um, you could say, I guess, it's sort of the exact opposite of the inspirations for the character of Arendo when he <laughs> yeah, talked about the priest. Um, but Stefan actually wrote to us to say, so he's in the, he's in the, excuse me, he's in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, you might be interested to know that in the Netherlands, we call a match a Lucifer. Oh, interesting. So for me, the word Lucifer doesn't really have that negative connotation, except when you burn the house down using a match. <laughs> that would be bad. But then you can at least blame the devil. Oh. 
And I think <laughs> reading that, I thought to myself, I bet that's exactly the excuse Feanor gave to Mandos about the ships at Lost Guard. <laughs> oh, man. That's so a, thank you, Stefan, for that. Thank you. That was a, that was a well-needed laugh, much-needed laugh. <laughs> Well, folks, that does wrap it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Uh, As always, we really do thank you for joining us, and we have something special to announce. We've already let it out, but we're going to announce it again. Be sure to join us again in one week when we are honored to be welcoming John Garth to the podcast. He's the author of Tolkien and the Great War, as well as a shorter biographical work, Tolkien at Exeter College, as well as a number of articles about Tolkien in print and online. And I believe he just won the 2017 Tolkien Society Award for outstanding contribution. That's right, he did. And uh, I, I'm so looking forward to that. I think that might actually very well top discussing A. Arendel for two hours and 20-something minutes. Um, <laughs> we're, we're very excited to have him joining us, and I know it's going to be something that we'll enjoy, and I think you'll all enjoy it as well. Um, if you haven't picked up Tolkien in the Great War yet, uh, please do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fantastic read, and we'll have some links really up to is. it on our website. Yeah, and if you have, you should also consider ordering a copy of Tolkien at Exeter College, which you can do directly from John Garth's website at www.johngarth.co.uk. And again, we'll put that link up in our show notes. Sean and I have both, and we plan to be asking about both works. Yep, absolutely. And then one week after that, we'll come back to the Silmarillion, and we'll finally reach the Second Age when we dive into the first half of the Akalabeth. That's the story of Numenor for all you first-time readers, so if you've been wondering about that place ever since you first heard the name Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you're finally (laughs) about to get some answers. Finally. Uh, Yeah, the good news is it it picks up right where this story leaves off, though we're not going to spoil how. But if you haven't read it before, don't worry. We're not going to take you too far afield just yet. It will all make sense, I promise. Yes, and as I said, this next episode will just cover the first half, so we're going to go up to the passage on page 270 of our edition that ends with he himself set sail with his host into the east. I don't know, Sean. That's not foreboding enough, really. Maybe we should... Not at all. Okay. Nothing bad ever comes from the east. <laughs> uh, remember, if you're reading along and like to take notes as much as we do, don't mark up your first edition hardcovers. Go to the official library tab on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, where you can find links to cheap paperbacks of Tolkien's works, as well as audiobooks, music CDs, and some other cool things for your Tolkien collection. Mm-hmm. And if you buy through those links, you'll be helping to support this show without costing you a penny more. We appreciate that. And you can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes. Even if you don't listen to us on iTunes, you can still leave us a review. It just takes a few minutes and an Apple ID. Uh, Some of you have said some really wonderful things on there, and we humbly thank you. We do. And if you haven't done so already, you may subscribe on iTunes or through Mm -hmm. your favorite podcast app. You can find our RSS feed on our website, or you can search for us on Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and most other podcast directories. Yeah, and you know what? Subscribing on iTunes does help us a little bit because we're trying to figure out that crazy algorithm. Apple won't tell us anything. So if you can subscribe to us there, we'd appreciate that. But a big thank you to those of you who are connecting with us on social media. We set out to start a conversation that everyone could join, and that's why we call this The Prancing Pony. And it's why we have the online common room on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast and on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod. And social media is a great place to share the podcast as well. So please retweet us, share us, tell your friends, and thank you to those of you who are doing it. Indeed. And one last thing, as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, or selfies with your favorite star. And no, Elijah Wood and Orlando Bloom don't count. To (laughs) the Prancing Pony Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll try to get him into our next episode. Well, oh my, three hours and something? (laughs) Two Two hours hours and and 20 minutes. Uh, 
Definitely far, far too short a time to spend among such admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>